0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Desert Sun podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Right, today I have with me my second guest on the Desert Sun podcast, Bill, who writes the blog, Occam's Razor, oh, Occam All You Faithful, how do you call it?
1: It's William of Occam, is the uh, is the hyperlink, and then I uh, wank around with the, with the uh, subheadings.
0: Okay, right, so anyway, Bill is in Australia, and I'm in France, and we're on Skype, so if there's any... So oddities with the audio. That's probably that's why it is. He's, we're not sat here with bottles of alcohol like I was with my last guest. So okay. Um, so I'll leave it to you, Bill, to tell me what it is you do. What are you doing down there? Um,
1: without being too specific, I help reasonably large organisations uh, become more efficient and save money. Um, and sadly, often that involves removing people out of the workforce.
0: Okay. Uh, what sort of organizations, a private sector or government?
1: A bit of both, actually. I've recently been doing some public sector work, uh, which has been interesting because I miss the 1980s. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but generally, I pitch myself at organizations. And, and headcount is an interesting measure, but if they've got about 5,000 employees, that's probably the sweet spot for me. I can swing under the radar of the big four uh management consultancies and, and my day right day rate doesn't shock the uh, the client too much
0: so are the 5000 people that's locally or globally
1: no within within the local uh, local organisation yeah i mean it's yeah it a piece of string it really depends on on what the problem statement is is that i'm there to solve but but an organ, as a as an example an organisation that employs about 5000 people in in australia would be a the size of the organization that would benefit from what I do and can also afford to pay me enough to pay my bills.
0: Okay. And typically, what what, what sort of things are you doing? Are you, fi- are you sending stuff offshore? Are you finding inefficiencies? Are you finding whole floors of people who you don't know why they're there and nor do they?
1: Well, all of the above, all of the above. Um, offshoring um, is starting to go out of favor. Um, there's there's been uh, you know, a lot of organisations that have done offshoring have got the benefit financially out of it and, and now they're thinking about you know it's that old it's that old um, apocryphal story of the uh, the purchasing manager for McDonald's who on their first day uh, looked at the looked at the Big Mac and saw there were two gherkins in it and, and told everyone to remove one and saved a billion dollar saved a billion dollars that year what do you do the next year is the question yeah. So, so, um, so
0: is is offshoring falling out of favour just for financial reasons, or are customers complaining about it?
1: Well, it depends how you do it, really, isn't it? If you um, if you if you offshore uh, poorly or without uh, without really thinking it through, then yes, you're going to give the customer a uh, a really poor experience. But then you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that you you offshore anything that's customer facing. Um, sure. You know. It's, it's the shop front. You wouldn't want to put that in India or the Philippines, would you? But offshoring tends to be out of favour in Australia anyway. It's quite a parochial um, attitude. Um, and automation seems to be the, you know, the new black. Um, but if you think about it, at least with offshoring, some jobs remain. <laughs> with automation, the job just goes
0: yeah it's um I guess it, again it depends on what the level of the automation is I, I think I wrote on my blog I had a rather interesting back and forth with a, a lecturer who was a whose speciality was law by the way international law who mm-hmm. was too busy telling me that you know the robots are coming and you know all these all these jobs will be gone but from what I've seen I mean honestly that that's been happening since the industrial Revolution I yeah. think. So long as you have complex systems, you will always need a human being to intervene. And as mu- and yeah, you can make huge savings in your human resources by automating stuff. But that all that does is mean you need a better, high quality individual to ensure, firstly, the system is set up correctly, and secondly, that it's being run correctly. So. You know, you if you've like, for example, if you've got uh, if you have twenty men on a production line, and you replace them with a robot, first you need a very intelligent, very expensive team of people to make that robot, Mm. and their jobs aren't going away. Secondly, you need somebody to maintain it, Um, and that person's usually higher skilled and and better paid than the people on the production line.
1: Well, it's worse than that. If you yeah. think about it, because because generally a robot won't... You know, when we're talking robots, you know, we're not typically talking... You know, we're not always talking about, you know, as you say, manufacturing robots, which are physical. It could be software, software, software exactly. automation. But it's very unlikely that a piece of software is going to fully automate any one job. It, exactly. it, may, it may automate 20% of it. So if you've got five people in the team and you automate 20% of that team then in theory that's one job that, that uh, walks out the door in, in practice very few managers have the, the capability or the well, even the discipline to to drive that savings so benefits realization is is um, is really what I do um, you know someone has the idea um, but they don't have the, the chutzpah or the, the bottle to, to push it through and, and that's and that's a particular skill um, Yes. The,
0: yeah. Well, you need thick skin, which is lacking generally in a, a lot of certainly middle or middle high managers. They have thick skin in some ways when they're defending their own careers, but they don't really have the gumption to make difficult decisions. That's what I've found anyway.
1: Well, I mean, you yeah, know, and, and why would you? You know, if you set a, if you spent ages setting the team up and the financial um, reason d'etre for that team has, has disappeared over the years, you know the the incentive isn't necessarily there for you to reduce that headcount and let them, you know, free up the the financial resource to do something better with the money. Um, it, it usually takes someone above them, and it's usually the CFO saying, "My goodness, we're we're in trouble here. We, you know, the benchmark says that that this process or this manufacturing um, uh, process should." take X number of FTEs for X, X amount of value, and we're way off the scale, why would that be? And the reason is is that um, over time, those roles have, have been partially automated, um, and people are spending a lot more time looking at the Sydney Morning Herald sports page.
0: Yeah, and it kind of, but that's, I don't know, and I don't know if there ever was an era where this happened, but that reinforces a, a complaint I hear occasionally that managers don't seem to know what the management job is now. I mean, I see, I see a, certainly a middle, upper middle manager's job as to be always looking for those marginal gains and always trying to work out what the next year, two years looks like. That's I mean, if, the, if they want an incentive, they need to look at their salary. That's what they're being paid to do. A manager's job isn't to collect the salary and just kind of watch what's happening. It's precisely that, to to manage the department in the best and most efficient way possible. And I found that a lot in my career, that managers, they want the title, they want the salary, they want the prestige, they want to be able to go and tell their friends and their children that they're a big manager and they've got a big desk. But when it came to the actual management they seem to be unaware of why they're being paid. And I used to make this uh, comparison a lot, that if you're paying a guy to lay railroad sleepers, he is being paid to lay railroad sleepers. The more railroad sleepers he lays, that's that's why you're paying him. Whereas a manager, it's not like that. A manager's job is to make decisions, to shoulder responsibility and to do, it's not to sit there laying railroad sleepers. It's to actually yeah. do all the stuff that isn't necessarily immediately measurable, but they don't do it. They seem to think that, oh no, well, I'm not going to shoulder any responsibility. Then why are you there? You're not, you're not, you're well, not building the railroad. So what, what are you doing?
1: Well, I've, I've got two points to make on that and, and I completely agree. I mean, what, what you just described is what used to be called a general manager. Um, and, and the important point with that now, uh, compound name is, is general, is you should, yes. in theory, be able to lift the general manager from department X, let's say, manufacturing, to department Y, let's say, sales. And yep. but they're not the subject matter expert. In fact, you don't want them to be the subject matter expert because exactly. they'll, be down, they'll be down in the weeds. They'll revert the type. You want someone who goes, right, what's my workforce? What is it they're doing? What's the pipeline? Is there a more efficient way of doing this? You know what, what? What's the budget for next year? What's the what's the sales pipeline look like? What's that going to do for what we have to do downstream from here? Generally managing, um, and I think what tends to happen, especially um, especially in countries like Australia that have been very lucky um, over the last few decades and, and have skipped uh, a lot of the a lot of the headwinds that of, of economies that uh, um, such as the US or the UK or other European economies. They've not had a recession since 1992. Yeah, there are there are people there are people in organisations that are 50 years old that have not had a PNL in in their adult life um, in a recession in a recession or even something that looks like a recession. Now there've been a couple of industries that have had their own version of a recession, but um, in general, most of Australian general managers with that title have actually not. Done the other side of the let's go and recruit loads of people because things are great. They've not had to do that, and and therefore it's complete and affirmative And they've not they've well, I mean, it's not be really cruel. Cool. They just don't have the muscle. They've not developed that muscle over the years. You know, someone someone who, who's your age or my age, who's grown up in the UK, for example, and worked in the UK or Europe or or, or the US, two recessions at least with a with a P and L responsibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's two more than most most fifty year old Australian managers. And like to, me, to, be fed
0: to oh, Go on, carry on.
1: I was, I was going to say the, the other point I make is <coughs> is is your, you're paid as a you're, you're paid as one of those general managers for the difficult day, not for the easy day. Exactly. Um, you know, you're, you're paid you're paid for the bad news day. You're not paid for the havers hey, cake in cake in the kitchen if everyone wants one day. Exactly. Um, and, and that's the one that people tend to shirk quite quite quickly. I mean, I, there was there was a change project I ran a couple of years ago where where a, a person you know, a person with chief in his title, as in chief operating officer or whatever. I won't say what, what his exact title was. So someone really you know one down from one down from the end um, had to had to make an announcement that, that there was going to be a bunch of retrenchments. Um, they're all in the same building, so it wasn't a distributed department. They're all in the same building. He did it from a telephone call in his office. So, oh, so the So the HR and comms people scripted up what he was going to say, and he did a conference call. I mean, uh, just you know, hand, hand your—it was a man. Hand your man card back. You know, that's that's just. But this thing. this
0: managerial cowardice, I think, is is rampant, and I've seen so few examples of the opposite that I, I concluded some time ago that modern management selects for managerial cowardice anybody who has managerial courage is weeded out quite early as being a bit of a troublemaker it's not what gets you ahead in an organization they want people compliant so yeah by the time they get to a position where they really need to wield some some power and show some courage they're hiding in their office giving conference calls and yeah I, I remember when I was uh Back in my glory days when I was 30 or something, I was the general manager of a company, a very small scaffolding company out in um, Russia. Actually, the company was pretty big, but my operation was, it was small. And I had to fire somebody. And honestly, it was a horrible, horrible job. But the way I saw it was that this is why I'm being paid. I'm being paid more than a scaffolder, even though I don't erect yeah. any scaffolding. I don't have to stand out there in the wind and the rain and the snow. I have to sit in my office with my feet up, surfing the internet and blogging. But when it comes to a decision and shouldering responsibility, well, that's why you earn your money. And when you have to fire somebody who's blubbering in your office that he's got a family to feed, well, that's when you're earning your money. That is why you're paid to look that guy in the eye and go home at night feeling like shit because you've just ruined somebody's life. And I saw especially in my previous employer, they simply didn't want that level of personal confrontation and unpleasantness in their lives. So they shirked it. But then that raises the question, why are they being paid? They're not paid to to erect scaffolding or lay a railway. They're paid for when the time comes, you need to do something pretty unpleasant. You have to dish out a shit burger, as I put it in my recent post. And they suddenly say, I'm not going to do it. And this... That to me is a complete dereliction of your yeah the main purpose of you being employed. But it seems to be ubiquitous across nearly every company I've worked in.
1: Well, but but the thing is, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the expression before: incentives matter. How, how are how are we measuring these people's performance, um, and how are we rewarding it? Um, there's a there's a great, there's a great um, uh, academic study from the 90s, I think it is. Um, it's free on the internet. It's a PDF. I, I, I would recommend anyone to download it. It's about 12, 12 to 16 pages. It's a very quick read. It's really, really entertaining. It's called "On the Folly of Rewarding A While Hoping for B," and it talks about all of the systems that you put in place in society that reward a particular behaviour, but actually are counterproductive. And and you know, one example is you go to the doctor with some some ambiguous condition. Now, the doctor's got two choices. You can either say, look, I don't know what that is. I don't think you've got anything off you go. Or he can say, um, actually, I'm not sure, but I think it might be this. Here, take this pill. Now, you're going to feel cheated if he gives you option A. If yeah. you get option B, you'll feel like, you you know, that's great, wonderful, well, fantastic. But, you know, actually, the problem is nothing wrong with it. The other, op- the other um, thing it talks to is, is warfare if you I mean, were if you were a gi um traveling to normandy in 1944 when were you going home you you were going home when the war was won. So that was the yeah 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 it was, yeah,
0: was, was yeah. gold driven. yeah that's right
1: if, if if you were going to vietnam when were you going home yeah you were going home, time. yeah, yeah you're going home when your tour of duty is over and yes. um, so so when you were commanding officers there you to go and clear out that hole and you were two days away from pouring it up um in singapore yeah, you're not going to take too far into that. And you know, that was the war where the the term "fragging" was was coined, which means shooting your commanding officer.
0: Yeah, because in fact that that gets back to. I mean, you compare World War Two and Vietnam. It's because the goals of ultimate victory were so well they were so well they were very well defined in World War Two, unconditional surrender yeah. of Nazi Germany, and in Vietnam, well, who knows what the goal was? So it probably it's the same problem in a business context that if the goal is badly defined, yeah, how can you how can you incentivize performance when people are just marking time?
1: Yeah, and and it's and it's possibly not even badly defined, right? We could we could struggle to define it and articulate it. The point is it's not common. It, yeah. it is I like, you know, it, you know, we we may have a vague feeling about well we're gonna get that hit with a but the point is, we have a common goal. I'm not letting you come home until you've won the war. You'll, you want to win the war now, so incentives matter. And, and I think there's, yeah. And again, without bagging the Australian economy too much, not having a recession since 1992 means that, 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 that a lot of the you know the personal um, development and reporting uh, activity I see in HR departments, for example, yeah, it's weak as right. You can you know it's very rare that you uh, that you get marked down. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's all about positive goals. It's a lot about reinforcing behaviours. Um, and, you know, and that's what you get. You get those people who sit in their office. Another example is uh, a guy who was looking for me um, had to um, make someone redundant um, for medical reasons, long, long-term medical problems. They get a big payout. But the point is, it's you know, I'm sorry, the time has come. You're, you're unable to work here now. Here's a check. Sorry. Good luck with, with, with your health. Um, yeah, it's it's a terrible thing. You have to do it at some point. Uh, MS, for example, is a yeah uh, a, a disease. At some point, someone either the employee or the employer has to say, "I'm sorry, it's it's not viable anymore." Um, and um, and the, we were very generous with the cheque, but the <laughs> the person who she was reporting to was a friend, um. so. So wouldn't 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 do that. So uh, the guy who was working for me basically drove four hours up to the top of New Zealand to deliver that news and drove four hours home again.
0: Yeah, but this, but this is this is the problem though. As you say, it's it's a matter of incentives and the from what I've seen. And you know, people will say, oh, it's different in small companies, it's different on a project. That's bollocks. I mean, I used to hear this in the oil business all the time. Oh, it's different on a project, it's different in a produ- producing installation. No, it isn't, because I've been there and I've worked there as well. And I've worked for small companies. And I think in general, performance isn't really rewarded, nor does it really buy you much in an awful lot of companies and an awful lot of industries even. The only thing I've seen which really gets you marked down and HR wanting to get rid of you or people wanting to get rid of you or you getting a bad reputation is basically not being on message. It's, they call it insubordination, being difficult, being awkward. And what gets rewarded is sheep-like compliance. If you're on message and you nod and say the right things at the right moment, you will have a very good reputation with the, the hierarchy in the appraisals, in the whispers, in the corridors and the lunches. And when it comes for a new job, a new position comes up in the company. Oh, this guy's good. Yeah, he, he's done his time and shown what's what. If you're someone who's actually trying to get stuff done and make things better and trying to clear the obstacles in order to achieve the defeat of Nazi Germany, um you You find that you can you can really tread on on people's toes and upset them, and that's the yeah. problem if those are the incentives, then yes you will get certain kind of people rising up through the organization it's It's simply that I think a lot of companies have forgotten how to set goals and understand that we're not here to be mates, we're not here to have our egos massaged we're here to achieve a goal,
1: yes. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound uh, at all bitter about this because it's it's done me very well over the last few years. Uh, because <laughs> I because I I, I, I work on a, I don't know, I work on a daily rate, and um, I, you know, I'm, I I'm at the end you know, five five o'clock six o'clock in the evening. I kind of know that I did the job because I'm invited back in the following day. Um, yeah, you know, my notice period is zero zero minutes. Um, so I often find that I'm doing work, that there's probably someone in the organisation could do, but it's just not good for that to um, And the other thing, the other thing I find um, more recently that I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing interim management roles where the vacancy is being held for a female. Um, so we've got, I don't know, one down from the MD, we've got five direct reports, uh, three of them are men, one's a woman and there's a vacancy. So uh, I I can sometimes turn up and get that gig for three to six months while they while they do the difficult thing of finding someone who is of the right gender and also has the has the skill set and experience to not completely break things. Um, uh,
0: Well, yeah, because it's uh, going back to our war analogy again. You're basically a mercenary, and as I've written before on the blog about how the basically modern armies, certainly in Europe and increasingly in the US, they're not actually there to fight wars anymore, but someone still needs to fight the war. So what's happening is they're employing more and more and more mercenary forces. And I've got a mate who was a mercenary and he did very well and he could still be doing very well now, but he's got a family and he doesn't fancy getting killed. But mercenaries have plenty of work these days. If you're an out-and-out mercenary... You have plenty of work. You will be employed on serious money anywhere in Africa supporting U.S. Mm-hmm. troops. And that's similar to what's happened with you, I think. You've got these companies which exist to basically keep people in cushy positions, or at least that's what it would appear if, uh, to an outsider. And they still need people to come in and do the job. And rather than restructuring to get their own people to do it, they've basically hired you. Yeah. So, you're just a mercenary. You've come in as a mercenary, you know, gun for hire, you come in. So, yeah, that seems to be what's happening is that the people who are actually the goal driven people who are delivering, part of that is being outsourced to mercenaries.
1: Thanks for that. I'll bear I'll, I'll that in mind tomorrow when I'm running a series of workshops with the human resources department. But I am actually, <laughs> I, I am actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm John Rambach.
0: <laughs> what you should do, you should bring in a big hunting knife and use it as your pointing aid in the presentation. That's
1: right. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe, maybe use the infrared—you uh, know—the the red dot on my uh, on my assault rifle to to point at the screen.
0: <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll bring you back to what you were saying just before I kind of interrupted you. That you said that a lot of the, some of these positions are being held open for a female.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, well, so, I, I mean. You know, you, you, you can find hundreds of podcasts with, with people like Susan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and stuff like that, about, about the, um, the evils of equality of outcome rather than the quality of opportunity. But, um, yeah, I, I've, I've, it, it's becoming a pattern now that, that uh, I seem to be doing quite well from the fact that there aren't enough females at a particular level in an organisation, or a particular level within the talent, external talent pool, um, to, to fill all of these roles so yeah, you know, I, I tend to slip in quite nicely for a, a three to six month assignment um, being a night watchman for a department let's um, keep the lights on until we find a kind of permanent replacement that doesn't have the same genital configuration that I
0: do. yeah and I think, I think there is going to be a lot of opportunities for competent people Certainly competent men, because, yeah, if, they, if all the competent women are going to be snapped up straight away or most likely they're already working, they don't need to take mercenary roles. But I think there'll be a lot of opportunities for competent men to do exactly that, to sort of do the job, but not do the job officially, if you know what I mean. So in, in one, it's a bit like in the Middle East where you have, you know, there's, the head of every department is a local Arab, but the number two is an expat. And the yeah. expat does all the work and the Arab just sort of sits there at the head of the organization. I think we're going to start seeing probably arrangements that are similar to that or certainly similar in outcome where you have a nominal person in a position and it's just the, the nearest competent person does the actual job. Now, it might be that that nearest competence person is outsourced. It might be a contractor. You might have somebody... At the head of a, an organization doing X, but actually X is outsourced, and all the organization's doing is supposedly managing it. But I think we're going to see a lot more of that.
1: Well, I think we already are. If you, um, I'd be curious to to look at um, look at the, the the business model for KPMG or PwC. I've seen a lot of their consultants coming in and doing those interim roles, and, and you know. The, the unwritten reason is, is because we're holding the position for a, a different looking person um, in the permanent role. The, the other thing is obviously um, when you hire a consultant or a, or a contractor, uh, it doesn't appear on your official headcount for women in leadership reporting back to the government. And I don't know if um, other uh, what, what other countries do, but in, in Australia there's a, you know, there's a women in leadership and um, gender pay uh, reporting requirement. Uh, which a couple of large organisations got caught out with last year when, when it was found after an audit that they just basically retitled the whole bunch of jobs to have managing the uh, product. Top
0: yeah, and what's, what's, uh, what's going to happen, it's already happening, is they're now telling the contractors that they have to comply with these quotas as well. So, for, for instance, for government work in the US, All the contractors have to show their commitment to minorities and Native Americans and things. But all that's going to happen then is that they in turn subcontract. And it rarely goes more than one level down the subcontracting chain. So eventually, it'll just, again, like the mercenaries, it'll eventually just go down to the nearest person, you know, the next person who can fight. And interestingly, a good mate of mine, he's just left an American bank after being there 25 years because his career completely stalled because they, all the middle management and upper management positions that he would naturally step into were being filled by uh, women and minorities, preferably both. And the thing is, what, what annoys me about this, and I, and I push back against this, is I do actually think there are obstacles in the way of women in work. For a start, there's obstacles in the way of men. If you're not from the right school and you don't show the right deferential attitude, you're as, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. So there's already kind of, they they already do have disadvantages that men have if they're they're competent. But they do have some others already. Uh, They do have some because they're women, which I'll, I'll describe in a bit. But what annoys me is the narrative is that there's this mass of competent, well-educated women who could drive the profits of the company ever higher if only this mechanism by which they're being held back is removed. And that Mm. this mechanism is is driven by pure discrimination, which is absolutely ludicrous. So they've described the problem thusly and they've tailored the solution around it. And all it's going to do is put more incompetent women into positions alongside incompetent men. We've already discussed that the incentives are totally wrong for men, which is why you get so many useless men. And to be honest, for every useless female I've met in a position, I've met 10 useless men. Because the incentives are wrong. So all they're doing is reinforcing the wrong incentives that have given us useless men, and that's going to result in a whole load of useless women. Instead of looking at the sorry i'll just i'll just finish my point here while i remember it instead of looking at the reasons why competent men and competent women might not make it through an organization and changing that so by default you'll end up maybe not with more women than men but you'd certainly end up with better women who could then perhaps inspire others instead of just putting token women in positions who turn out to be as useless as the men they replaced?
1: Well, i, I sorry, sorry to re- interrupt you. It's difficult to get the cues on uh, and stuff. Um, so the so there's the, 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 an extra problem there. Um, so I agree with you that you know, I, I've worked with some amazingly competent women and still am, and uh, I've I've had really competent women working for me over over the years. Um, The problem is is trying to manufacture this outcome. And what happens is, is for all the right reasons, the wrong thing happens. And I can think of an example from a couple of years ago where I I worked for a very competent um, female executive. Um, And she was in a completely manufactured job. It, it, was, it was a job that didn't need to exist, running a department that made no logical sense. If you, I'll, I'll, I'll try and think of a way of changing the industry and what it was. If you think of, think of car manufacturing, that's a, good, that's a good example actually because they don't do that anymore in Australia. Yeah. Um, and actually, <laughs> it's quite I was trippled about this. So the reason why British car man, manufacturing went down, down the tube in the 1970s was because of workers' strikes. The reason Australian car manufacturing went down the tubes is because the buyers went on strike because <laughs> <laughs> the, the cars are shit and expensive. Um, so if you imagine, if you imagine in uh, car manufacturing, let's so say you've got the R and B department, you've got the manufacturing uh, department, and the sales department. And um, so there's there's four senior execs reporting in BND, so three senior execs reporting in BND. Yeah. so what this organisation did is it took about 20% out of each of those three departments and renamed it a brand new department let's call it, I don't know, voice of the customer some yeah, department, yeah, department, yeah. Something, like, yeah. something like that right? and, and gave this woman this job and, and she was there for a couple of years and every time you ask her what the department's purpose was, couldn't Really give you the you know, the answer wasn't one sentence right which, which tells you which tells you that it's a, it's not really well defined and in the end in the end she she got headhunted to do something else um and she went off and did it and they replaced her with one of her direct reports who' was a female I think she had three females males as her direct report they replaced her with a female so no advertised um vacancy no no um, interview process other than that one candidate. Replaced her with that female, who then continued to have her previous duties. So that tells you everything you need to know about that position, is you could do it in addition to another full-time job.
0: Exactly. And there's, um. in fact, there's a good, uh, I was going to blog about it uh, after this. In fact, I might just put a link up on the, on the blog afterwards. But Nancy Pelosi has just, she was under pressure for there not being enough minority female people in leadership positions in the Democratic Party. So she's just invented a position and given it to a, a black senator, I think. And somebody said, how's this leadership? If you have mm. to invent a position with a fancy title and stick a minority or a woman in it, that isn't helping anybody, least of all the candidate, except for obviously it's a nice cushy position. But I, have a, I worked with a, a woman in my previous job who was, she was seen as quite a high flyer and she is good. And I won't say much about her because I don't want her to be identified, but she she is good and she's got a good solid background. I got on very well with her. But the reason she was seen as quite good is she wasn't only competent, but she was very compliant. She did what she was told. But doing that almost cost her her health. She was stressed beyond belief with situations that she couldn't push back against. And... Everybody who sent her, you know, you're too nice. But if she'd have spoken out, all of a sudden she'd have been accused of our not being on message. So her career is going very well. And right now it's good. She's got a good boss. But there was a year period where she was having to take sick leave because of the stress she was under, because of the misorganisation and the complete lack of structure in the, in the work around it. And they gave her this terrible person to work alongside who is complete lunatic. And so that, so that's the problem. You put people in these positions, but it's not really helping. What you need to do is give you know, create the proper job that needs doing and give them all the tools to do it. Yeah, And then women, competent women will naturally come forward anyway. And by contrast to that, she had a friend who was also my friend who I, uh, who I worked with. She's far more outspoken. She's far stronger and she's well educated. And her career has gone absolutely nowhere simply because her face doesn't fit. So she's a really competent, well educated female engineer with loads of experience. Career is absolutely dead because she's the wrong sort of female, just as I'm the wrong sort of guy. And the women who are being promoted are just the yes women, or they're women who, they're not really yes women, but they, they're they like you know the first lady I talked about who's just too nice to really push back on this stuff.
1: Well, if you think about um, the situation I've just described, this person is extremely competent. One of, one of the best operators I've worked with for a long time, and she's got a proper job now in the organisation, and it's, you know, it's global, and it's Huge, and she'll she'll be running a, a major organisation over uh, the next few years. So clearly very competent. Um, and and I just thought I always wondered how internally she justified those two two years that she did that role that really wasn't a role. Yes. You know, I, I would, my, my wife occasionally when, when I when I'm bored or, or finding I'm struggling at work, she goes, "I'll just rise the pay wage." Uh, you can, you, at some point, at some point, you've got to realise that what you're doing is either adding value to the shareholder or it's, it's doing some good in some way or it's got a purpose. Just turning up and punching the clock is, is no good for your mental health either.
0: It isn't. And I did that for, well, when I left the oil business over the summer, a lot of people said, oh, can't you just carry on and just collect the money? I said, I've been doing that for five years. That is precisely what I've been doing. I've been turning up, closing my eyes, collecting the money and just thinking, well, you know, it's better than being on the dole. But can I do this for the next 20 years? I can't do it. It was starting to, yeah, I, I have to I have to feel that I'm adding some sort of value. I can't just be digging holes on the beach below the tide line and then digging the same hole the next day and pretending that I'm. I've got a real job. And that's the. I think that's the problem that um, the 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 lady I spoke to about had. She was being promoted and put on all these courses and said that you know you're you're part of our future and we want you to be in this prominent position. And she was saying, I hope this isn't just because I'm a woman. I hope mm. that this isn't, isn't some token appreciation because they need to tick a load of boxes. She said, Look, I, I I'm happy competing against men, and she was good enough to she'd done that right through her career. She said, I don't want this, these opportunities presenting themselves just because I'm a woman. I, that's irrelevant. I want to get them on, on my competence. And that's the problem. As soon as you have this tokenism and quotas, it undermines the validity of any competent woman who happens to achieve a prominent position.
1: Yeah, yeah, quite. And, and it, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, this is a blast from the past. Um, the oh, movie. 1980s movie, Soul Man. Do
0: you, know you know the one? I haven't seen that, no.
1: It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the teen movies from the 80s. So the story the story is a white um, a kid wants to go to Harvard, um, but I can't remember whether his dad said he wasn't going to pay or... Or went to the spaces or whatever, but there was a quota being held for African American um, students. So basically, I mean, the film couldn't be made today. No, I'm going to uh, say so this is, you're, you're, already, so, you're so, already
0: getting banned. <laughs> yeah,
1: so, so basically, so basically, he did blackface and um, and and bluffed it for a while and and, and went to Harvard. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure. I, I think I've only seen it once, and probably when it came out. And I'm pretty sure it was shit. But, but, the, but the point is, you couldn't make that movie today. But it is about that whole that whole, and, you know, prices are set at the margins, right? So if yes. you think about, if you think about that kind of thing, I'm, I'm, so I don't know if you saw, there was a story in uh, the UK papers uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was, um, there was an Irish guy, theatre director, who got a grant that was for um, uh, black. Oh, yeah, black and he was director. as pasty as we are. Yes, and, and he, he had, you know, his, his, all of his relatives as far back as he, he knows were white Irish, but he identifies as African. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, this is, this is, yeah, incentives matter, right? Prices are set at the margins, incentives matter. That That's what you get, you know, it's the, it's the, the Rachel Dolziel and um, who's the other guy, Sean. Talcum X King in the US, you know, who, who are these black rights activists who, who aren't when, black. When actually who aren't actually black. Yeah. Yeah, but but the,
0: the funny the funny thing is, I, I heard on one of the Joe Rogan podcasts he had some guy on I'd never heard of before, but I quite liked him. Um Michael somebody, maybe. He was some he was like a right wing troll. He's quite funny anyway. I've not heard of him, but anyway, he came across really well. And he his theory was this whole Tranny movement and the trans rights thing is basically a bunch of trolling men although they actually do genuinely believe it they're not just trolls but they've decided that well the best way to compete with feminists and to get all these advantages that women seem to be accumulating for themselves is just to identify as women just to say yeah. okay right we're part of your team now so you know where, where's our cut and mm-hmm. they, they don't and because they're playing by the rules laid out by the feminists they don't seem to they they seem to have um, they seem to be like kryptonite to them.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. You saw that I've, I've, uh, I wrote a, an, an an interesting anecdote from my personal experience a few weeks ago. Um, so I'm in, I'm in a role at the moment, and it's uh, I'm in a public sector organisation. So it is, you know, I, I am. Let's put it I'm not getting out of the car with my Make America Great Hat on uh, in the mornings. Yeah. And um, and so I, I'm. I, I have this weekly catch up with this lady, and uh, I can, I can you know, tell, tell you the things I dislike about her, but I'm not going to. I have this weekly catch up with this lady, and every. And I noticed the first three meetings, every now and again, apropos absolutely nothing, she would drop in some statement about my white, middle class, male, heterosexual privilege.
0: Ooh.
1: I, I'm, we're, we're talking about financial reporting. So I'm not sure how that's. At all relevant to this conversation. So anyway, I thought about it for a while, and the fourth, the fourth time, I sat there and poker faced. I said, "Did you just assume my ethnicity and uh, sexual orientation?" <laughs> and, and she was silent for a moment I said, because, well, basically, I'm, uh, I'm mixed race and I don't identify binary. Um, and I kept, I kept. This the poker face, yeah, uh, and just just let it, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, what's the whole, what's the old thing in sales? The the person who breaks the silence loses the deal. I didn't break the silence, and um, and she basically just blinked a few times and then moved on, and we've never spoken about it since.
0: I bet, yeah, I bet. In, yeah. in fact, to but, be fair to my previous employer, there was none of that. There was none of that. It was they. I don't know about the other oil companies. I'm hearing rumors from the more woke ones, but to be fair where I was, there wasn't any of that. You never got the, you know, the that they hadn't gone that far. In fact, yeah, the, the the biggest problem there was that you were you were pushing back against management dogma. But yeah, you never got that. And I've not worked in an organization like that, but you it's funny now I'm in academia, although it's it's pretty in terms of what you can say and what you can't say, it's a pretty good institution. It's not like some hotbed of uh, SJW uh, doctrine. I am hearing a few things like that creeping in now, which is quite funny. I mean, a few people have called me sexist because I've I've gone against what they've grown up on, on the propaganda they've yeah. grown up on. And, and my response is always, uh, I was talking about this in an email conversation with David Thompson. My stock yeah. line of defense is... I believe the advice that young women are being given is very bad, and will leave them unhappy and depressed, and probably on medication in later life. That is my why I'm saying these things. This is why I push back against these things. I think it's poor advice.
1: I agree, and and you know, from from experience, um, I, I'm meeting now a lot of colleagues, female colleagues who have had the career but haven't had the, the other stuff. Right? They've not had the, the long-term partner. They've not had the children. It's
0: tragic, isn't um, it? And,
1: and, and it's now too late. Yeah. I yeah, you know, had a team, had a, team two, uh, a year and a half ago, and there were five people in the team. One was a gay man. easy Skype in the world to manage. He's doing job, mate. Yes, mate, we will do. And the other three... <laughs> Three or four, or so we're, um, we're, we're single women over the age of 35, a couple of them are 40, and, and they were just bitter as hell.
0: Yeah. It's...
1: absolutely bitter as hell, right? They've been sold a line. They've been sold a line, and it didn't pan out, right? You, you can have a career, and you can have a family. Well, you probably need to put as much effort into the second one as you do the first one, actually. Um, and, you know, I'm, it's not the patriarchy. It's biology. If you want to, if you want to have kids, you've got a very short window as a female to um, to to get that, to achieve that. Um, and if you, you know, if you pick the wrong partner for the first time round, uh, or, or you know, whatever, right? You've got very little time to recover that situation. If you if you are also spending half of your month on a plane, going around the world for work, something is going to give.
0: Exactly. Exactly. The guy's going to be starved of affection and, and the relationship yeah. will end. And, and that's what happened. I mean, I know guys who've been, there's this myth that the men don't need affection. I know quite a few guys who said to me, they're the same age as me, that they're, they're married to uh, quite high-flying women or full-time working women. In fact, I, I hear this quite a lot. And they say, yeah, it's difficult because I'm kind of starved of affection. The idea that men don't want this—men need the affection. They—they mm. uh, they don't want to be on their own in a mar- in a marriage the whole time. Now, okay, you can say, okay, you know, the of course the woman needs the affection as well. It's a balance. It, it needs to be in both directions. And okay, maybe the man can be the stay-at-home husband or whatever. But that doesn't seem to solve the problem either because, the, yeah, both parties need, need the affection. I have seem to be finding that when a woman's really high-flying, the guy doesn't get that. And, of course, then he starts looking for it elsewhere and then the marriage ends. And the, the other thing as well is i found that I know so many guys throughout my career who are working their asses off till 11, 12 o'clock at night, putting up with all kinds of shit, to get the high salaries. And when you ask any one of them why they're doing it over the age of 28, 29, it's because it's maintaining the house and the lifestyle that my wife and my kids want and I want to give them. So you get a good house in a good catchment area. Your kids go to a good school. They have a safe car, a safe home. They go on nice holidays and it's maintaining this standard of living for the one they love and their children. Whereas, You find a woman who's been pushed into doing the same thing. Why are they doing it? You speak to one. I knew a woman who was 44, working like hell, earning quite good money in a good position in a big company, earning a fortune, working weekends. Why are you doing it? She doesn't have a family. All she's got is very nice handbags and a lot of nice shoes.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, this, this isn't fulfilling. Whereas the guy... He's doing it. He hates the job. He hates being in the office. He hates it, but he sees the reward.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. It's, it's um,
0: yeah,
1: I, I see I see quite a lot of the of these um, executive females that probably thought they were going to have it all 15, 20 years ago, and as you say, now what they've got is uh, a first class lounge lifestyle. Um. And, and they're quite lonely.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and, and it, and it, yeah. It, it. So, my advice to my, my I've, I've got daughters, as you know, you've, you've met a few of them. Yep. Um, and, um, yeah. And, yeah, my advice is going to be, is and is going to be, um, put as much effort into your personal and family life as you do your career. And, in, and in fact, Ultimately, your career isn't that important either, male or female. It's it's just not that
0: important. Exactly. And, but the thing is, the lie that's been sold and continues to be sold is that men in these high-flying positions really enjoy it and it's brilliant and it's something to aspire to. The kind of people who become seriously senior in big organisations, there's something wrong with them. I mean, they're particular yeah. characters. Most of them are psychopaths. They're intensely driven this isn't a lifestyle i'd want i don't want that and and when you when you're a young man you know you go into your first job at 22 you you assume you're going to be ceo and by the time you're 30 you realize you're not cut out for it due to what you want out of life or your personality or you're too outspoken like i was so you kind of adjust your expectations a bit but you don't look up the organisation and think oh, I really want to be in that position because it must be so good. You understand the sacrifices needed to get there, the moral compromises you need to maintain that position. But somehow women are told, even now I hear it on my MBA course, you should aspire to these positions. Well, what if your character doesn't suit it?
1: Mm. What if if you don't like being on a plane every different week, Either. I mean, that's the other thing. This whole thing about international business travel is glamorous. Yeah, that is such a anyone listening to this who's setting out in their life, in their career, international travel is bollocks. It is officially bollocks. You get on a plane every week, you are you're gonna to struggle to keep any any regular social connection. You're gonna get bloated unless you are incredibly disciplined with your diet and your exercise. Um you're probably either you're going to have an affair or, or your partner's going to have an affair. It's just horrid. I mean, I, I did it for a couple of years where I was on a plane every other week and it, it felt good for the first six months. And then I was just thinking, my goodness, how do people live like this for, the, for their entire careers? And the answer is, is you become part of this this group like this yes um, but it, but it, but, it, but it's not a sustainable life so. no, and it's, mean... it's
0: also a, a young person's game I mean to be honest I loved it at the beginning especially the places I was going to I mean I, I was working in Warrington bored out of my head and suddenly I got an opportunity to get on a plane and fly around the world working in weird and wonderful places and at the same time I was I was traveling in on holiday in Russia and places like this and I knew I was doing it then because this is the time to do it when you have loads of energy before you've really settled into a proper relationship. And this is the time to do it because so I knew I don't want to be doing this when I'm 50. I don't even want to be doing it when I'm 40. And sure enough, one of the reasons I got out of the oil business was because I could just see it's going to be another 10, 15 years of on planes and airports in dumps living in places I don't really want to be. I mean, it was fun when you're 25, 26. It's great fun. You, know, you go to yeah. Kuwait, wander through the desert, you know, oh, I'll do this. Or, or in, in the arse end of Russia, and, you know, it's a laugh because your plane's been cancelled and you're having to drink yourself silly in the middle of Irkutsk Airport. You know, this is all fun when you're 28, 29. If you've got kids at home and you've got a wife at home and you've bought a house that you're not living in, then, yeah, it becomes yeah. a bit, oh, I don't really want to do this. And, and I found after... Going back to civilization in Paris after so much time away, I actually kind of like living in civilization. I like having a nice apartment with my stuff in it and you can walk down the street and everything's in order. Although <laughs> you'd argue that's not possible in Paris. But
1: that's what I, I love. I, 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 I was going to say, when you started off on that that, uh, that that speech there and you said I was going to interesting places, and I thought you meant like Warrington. <laughs> 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 Bless. Well. Well, you should should try uh, Huddersfield. Um,
0: I've been to all these places because, as you know, I used to follow the rugby league. So when I was living in Manchester, this would be around 2000, 2001, 2002, I used to go to all the rugby league matches. So I used to go to Huddersfield, to the Malcalpine Stadium to watch. Usually the semi-finals were held there because it was a decent stadium. Plus, the there was like a... I don't know if they still do it. There was a Yorkshire-Lancashire-War of the Roses match, a bit like the State of Origin. And I used to go to them. Yeah. So I've been to Bradford, Leeds, Castleford, w- Huddersfield, Warrington, Wigan, Wigan Widnes, St. Helens. I've been to all these places. And they are dumps, but they were good good places to go and watch a game of rugby league.
1: I have been to that that stadium, the McAlpine. I think, I sh- I think it was that one. I saw New Zealand versus... Italy in the Rugby <laughs> World Cup in nineteen ninety nine and, and it was it was a cricket score. And and the amuse, the most amusing part of the game was that Joe Malone played in the back row. I can't remember if he played Flanker or number eight, but he, he looked completely out of out of his day.
0: See, I I uh I saw all oh, right, so it's rugby union. No, what I saw was I went to the New Zealand Australia final of the, the Rugby League World Cup, which would have been in... That would have probably been 1999, probably. And... Gosh, I who won that then. Well, it was Australia, but one of the... I mean, it was, it was a walkover. It was a rubbish game. And the stadium was half empty because no one's interested in watching a Rugby League uh, final. And... But there was a breakaway by one of the New Zealand players and Matt Rogers, who would very shortly afterwards be playing in a, in the 2003 Union World Cup final against England. Matt Rogers turned and took off up the pitch after this Kiwi and caught him. And I've never seen anybody run so fast in my life. God, that boy was quick. I mean, I was way back in the stands, but the speed of that man, he just turned and just... Took off like like a greyhound. It was really impressive.
1: My, uh, my my kids only know Matt Rogers from that tackle from Josh Lucy.
0: That's right. This that that yeah.
1: broke a rib. Yeah. Yeah, he, he threw a, he threw a haymaker at Lucy, and, uh, and Lucy didn't respond. And, and pretty much the next play of the game, the um, I mean, I think we get Mark and probably getting a, a hospital cast. So he took the ball above his head, and um, and Lucy just came in and. It was just perfect. Shoulder, shoulder on the sternum. Thank you. Good night. Yeah, he he, a, he broke a
0: rib, and he's a he's a big surfer, Matt Rogers, and he had to uh, get a bit of his surfboard carved out because basically, That's when right. it healed, there was a sort some sort of lump on it, and he had to get a bit That's of right. a divot dug out so he could surf comfortably.
1: <laughs> oh shame! What a shame! Mate. What a shame. Hey, what, by the way, what are your Six Nations predictions?
0: Uh, well. Ireland look very strong. They look really good. Yeah, I, I mean, they and they've. I mean, they beat New Zealand a while back, and this shows that it wasn't a fluke that they really do have their act together. Um, Wales could always beat somebody. I think Wales aren't rubbish, and I think both Wales and Scotland are capable of beating England and Ireland on their day. I agree. So. It's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, it should be Ireland. England should be in with a shout. I don't think Wales or Scotland can win it, but I certainly think they can upset someone else's plans quite badly.
1: I, I agree. I was, I, was, I was going to say something like Ireland, England, Wales, Scotland, uh, and then you know, depending on which French team we've got this year, it'll, it'll be France or Ireland.
0: I don't think the French will cause anybody any trouble. They, they've been bad for so long. I think even the days are saying it depends which French team turns up, because okay, they beat England a while back, but that's because England were rubbish. I can't that's see a, the French doing any having a deciding say in the six nations next year, but Wales or Scotland could. There could be a crunch match which either England or Ireland get tripped up by a Wales or Scotland handing it to the other person. The other team. Yeah.
1: But- well, the, the, the first weekend is England versus Ireland, so in theory, that should, that should decide the competition. Anyway, as you say, the six nations is... The, the wonderful thing about the six nations is there's nearly always one upset. And so it'll be, it'll be really yeah, interesting. Did Ireland
0: win the Grand Slam last year? I don't think they did, did they?
1: Uh, I think they did. Oh, they did, did I they? Oh, they, did, they? Sure okay, Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, the Grand yeah, Slams sure. only
0: happen, like, once every, what, four or five years or something?
1: Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it might it's hard, right? You've going to win five matches on the bounce. It's almost like a World Cup.
0: And yeah, and and because of the way the Six Nations is, there's always a bogey team. I mean, the number of times Wales have beaten England or Scotland have beaten England against the odds, and and really thrown okay. a spanner in the works. It's
1: yeah, you, you're, traum- you're traumatizing me. I was there in I was there in, um, in two thousand at Murrayfield. <laughs> when all we had to do was turn up and collect the Six Nations. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, the, yeah, it was the Six Nations then. All we had to do. And and the, um, the first team captain uh, of the club I went for the night before said, "Guys, okay, we we're bound to win this, so why don't we just make a bit of fun of it and we'll stick five, five on Scotland each um, and then we'll just have a really big night on the winnings. Uh, sorry, oh, and if England we'll just have a really big night on the, um, on the winnings. And uh and England lost. And we turned to him and said, oh, so don't go and get the money. We'll go and drown our sorrows." Because I didn't get the Oh no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so go, going no. back to your day job, um, yes. so what do you what do you think is the is the future of the big business? Do you do you think we're going to see more and more and more of this sort of tokenism, or do you think eventually that is going to be Reach a critical point where it's just rejected, on a well, maybe not on the political level, but on the on the business level. Because at the moment, I see this kind of um, unstoppable drive to towards quotas, effectively. Especially now, the UK's demanded reports from each company into their gender balance hmm. on the board and things. Uh, at some point, do you think companies are going to push back or do you think the companies will end up just going down with the ship?
1: I. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, unless you've nationalized the industry, uh, ultimately the market is going to eventually make some sort of decision against it. Now, if, if that means that the service that you're buying, if it's not a, if it's not a tangible physical good, if the service you're buying, can be delivered from overseas, and it can be delivered from overseas, better and or cheaper, um, and and they're not hamstrung by, as you say, a quota system, then that's what will happen. The
0: problem for me with that is that so many of these companies are propped up by government expenditure. The government spends so much money into the private sector these days, and they can demand all this. I mean, Carillion was the perfect example. Their entire business, all their revenues came from the government. And of course, all their managers knew how to lobby governments for work. And they could comply with all this rubbish. So the market isn't really in play there. There's nothing free market about governments handing over billions and billions of dollars worth of work to companies on whom they impose these quotas. So that's my concern. The government expenditure doesn't seem to be going away. And that's what's driving a lot of this. I think if it was just private actors, you wouldn't really see a lot of this.
1: I think that ship sailed, I mean, you know, the, the whole free market capitalism thing, of which I'm a huge um, exponent and, and advocate, I think that ship was I think though, so. I'm trying um, you know, think of it was Is it the top one? You it? So, you know, once the voters realize that they can vote themselves wealth, um, well, um, democracy is screwed. And, and it's almost the same thing. But once, once you, once you reach a point, I don't know what that point is, in, in an economy where uh, over a certain percentage of the economy is completely reliant on, um, on expenditure from taxation or, or government debt, then, then the market is effectively dead. Um, you know, there are there are nice little surprises that pop up every now and again. You know, I love what Uber did to the to the shitty, expensive taxi services that you you had around oh, the yeah, yeah. world. You know, you know, in in Australia, it was the, the going rate for a taxi license was a hundred grand. You know, and I think I think in New York it it, it was even exponentially greater. You know, that, that's that's not delivering the service. That's speculation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, and yeah, companies companies like Uber just went, oh okay, well, everyone's got smart and GPS is free, thanks very much. Um, and I, I do love that disruption. But but ultimately with the quota thing, um if the consumer if the consumer isn't able to vote with their wallet, um, then you're you're into that whole Milton Friedman's four ways to spend money thing, which is, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Only four, very four ways. Your, your money on yourself, you know what you want and you know how much you're going to pay. Your money on someone else, which explains why my kids get send of Christmas presents. Someone else's money on you, which explains how my wife buys diamonds. And uh, someone else's money on someone else. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. I mean, absolutely, who cares?
0: But me? I think, actually, um, the, the argument... Oh, <laughs> One thing I think that sort of the the conservative or certainly fiscally responsible or uh, libertarian people on that side of the political divide haven't yet worked out is the debate between should there be massive state welfare or not? That ship sailed long ago. I've recently moved into the train of thought, which has partly been prompted by what Trump's doing and what his supporters have been saying. There is always going to be massive expenditure on welfare by governments. That is never going away short of a war and a total reconstruction. So what Trump's doing is saying, well, he wants to prop up jobs in manufacturing in the US. Now, yes, from a classical economical point of view, this is stupid. This shouldn't happen for all the reasons that, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it incentivizes inefficiency. It makes things more expensive for uh, consumers because the, the classical economists would say, well, you offshore it all to China. But the fact is there is already massive welfare spending and subsidize of industries. That's what's driving all these massive compliance bureaucracies in every company and every government department. So if the government is gonna be spending 20, 30, 40, 50 billion a year, propping up the jobs, the non-jobs, the totally unproductive jobs of the middle classes, the dim middle classes who've left university with a sociology degree, then why can't they also prop up a factory? And that's the problem. That argument doesn't seem to be taking place. It's always sort of, oh no, we can't prop up steel production. It's stupid for all these perfectly valid reasons. Right, but you can't address that without addressing the massive system of welfare that exists in the white-collar sphere. But people don't seem to think that's welfare. They don't seem to think that is as subsidised as basically having a national steel company.
1: It is. I would just counter that with two words though, Austin Allegro.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Probably, probably,
1: probably the world's shittiest car and it was built by the government. Now,
0: exactly. Now, uh, now it's, yeah, and, and I wouldn't know how to even begin to start putting in place these welfare programs because, as you say, you'd end up with the Austin Allegro inevitably. But the fact yeah. is that these welfare programs are already there. We already have the Austin Allegro of the white-collar world, and it's everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, I have a bit of sympathy for the Austin Allegro workers who are being told, oh, it's free markets, this is how it works, matey, when you have a skyscraper stuffed full of government-paid compliance officers who are completely dim and in a previous era would have been working, on a, would have been working in a farm somewhere and that's and i think trump's realized that and there's also the other argument that which i've got some sympathy with is that a country and a society and a culture cannot just be sold to the lowest bidder i used to think it could i used to think that you know the adam smith thing that you know you you everything's about the economics but i've been actually swayed by some arguments from the americans that america is turning into basically an airport with a which anyone can turn up to and buy anything. And yet you sell something to the Chinese. But what does that do to the society, the villages, the towns? And I'm not saying that subsidy and government intervention is the answer, but my dad put it a good way, actually. He said that because he used to be a free marketeer and he softened his position a bit because he said the free market creates lots and lots and lots of winners and globalisation has created Incredible numbers of winners, hence the massive wealth we have in that graph, which shows how brilliant globalization has been. But it also produces losers. Now, I'm not saying we should do anything necessarily or specifically about the losers, but let's start by acknowledging that they exist. That's the starting point. And yet, globalization's great that China now has all this manufacturing so we can close factories in America and we can get cheap products. But that doesn't help the 100 guys in the town who worked in the factory. And I don't know how to help them. But I think it's very important to do what Trump did and say at least those 100 people exist. And they are not impressed with globalization. They have lost. And if those numbers of a 100 grow to a million, now you've got a problem. And I don't know what the solution is, I don't, and I don't, you know, I, I'm sure anything I would try to come up with would easily be knocked down by the people who know economics. But the starting point is to say, these people need to be acknowledged. They have lost, so what do we do? I,
1: I, agree, I agree with your point, and I'm, uh, there's no way I'm going to solve this too. I, I, just to enforce that... It, if you are going to, you know, go going back to the start of our conversation where you talk about, well, you can automate point 0.2, point 0.2 of a job. And if there are five people doing that job, then in theory, that, that's a requirement for only four people now, not five. Um, the problem is, is with those kind of um, free market globalisation outcomes, it's not point 0.2 of a job, it's every job in one town. Yes. And... And it's the one town problem that that, um, that I think is the one that Trump has, has resonated. Yes. With, that you know, okay, yeah, sure, sure. It's only five thousand jobs this year that have been offshore to, to China. Trouble is, they're all in my hometown. Yeah, and it's every and it's everybody I know. Um, and you know, it it's not like it's not like we're all as mobile as Tim is, and he can just decide that he's going to work in a different capital city in the world this year. You know, we're we're not that kind of person. The other thing I think is, um, is there are going to be people who are left behind, and we do need to think about how we're going to deal with this. Um, and and it's a bit of a dangerous subject to get onto. But IQ is, is a big factor. The correlation between IQ and outcomes in many areas is incredible. And I was I was looking at, um, I was looking at the bell curve bell curve of IQ for some unknown reason a while back, and, and there are 2-3% of the population that are below 90. You're going to struggle to tell the shoes with an IQ below 90. No, it is and, a problem. These, these...
0: And, and In fact, I, I've said this on... I don't think I've written a post about it, but I've certainly voiced it in the comments of my blog. It's one of the things which the modern society has failed, in my opinion. It no longer provides work for the, the strong, young, dim men. And every yeah. society on Earth until basically 1990, provided plenty of work for a 22, 23-year-old man who was strong, fit, and dim. He would be in the army, he'd be digging holes, he'd be on a farm, he'd be in a factory. And now they've been completely shoved aside. And in their place has been uh, a growth in jobs for the middle classes, who are also a bit dim, but just smart enough to get some sort of a degree. But what do you do in a society with what do you do with your young dim men if they don't have an outlet for their, for their um, for their uh, uh, they don't have a, a way to to work or keep themselves busy? You end up with social problems. It's, it's
1: not even keep busy. It? It, it, it's, it's still feel um, like you exactly
0: it, like exactly it. that's what I meant to say. It's, that's a better way of putting it.
1: Yeah. If you're 25 years old. You know, you either feel like you're useful or you're breaking shit. Um, so, Europe has a real problem with this at the moment. I'm just sure unemployment, youth unemployment in various parts of Europe is shocking. I've seen double digits, and, and I, don't know, I don't know if it's still as bad for a year or two ago in Spain. That we've got so well, consi-
0: I mean, that's consider. mean, consider this, right? On my MBA course, there are probably 25 of us. I seem to be the only one with any experience. There's, in fact, there's one part-time person. She has experience, quite a lot of it, but she's part-time. Out of the full-time people, I'm the only one with real proper industry experience. The most anyone else has is a few internships, which are basically unpaid. So they were living off their parents while they were doing this. Well. It seems to be nobody can get a job out of university now. It's all... All they can get is unpaid internships. The jobs board in the university is littered with unpaid internships or internships in Geneva that pay $500 a month, which you can't live on. So they don't want to hire anybody. And I'm not sure it's just to do with employment laws. I think it's also just to do with the fact that there's an abundance of people. So if you can get the wealthy middle classes to send their kids to their companies for free, why not exploit that? But everybody yeah. on my course is gone straight from their first degree, their bachelor's, age 21, 22. They've tried to get a job, couldn't, so they're now doing an MBA. So these people aren't, impl- aren't showing up on the unemployment statistics. And you see this a lot in France. It's endless university internship, university internship, in this sequence until they're about 28, 29. So you have this whole cohort of people of that age, who've never had a job.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, it's, yeah, and, and the, the actual job where they get it is going to be a complete shot to the system. <laughs> oh, it is.
0: And, and the problem is as well, is the MBAs, and I don't know because I haven't canvassed every single MBA, but a lot of it seems to be aimed at teaching kids what to expect in their first job. Now, I'm pretty sure yeah. that that wasn't the point of an MBA. It used to be you had to have between five and eight years' experience in industry, and you go back in, and then you can apply all this knowledge, which is why I find it, look, the the works, there's a lot of work, and it's time consuming, but it's easy. Because when I can't answer a question, I just apply my knowledge. I mean, I've got tons of industry experience, you can apply the theory to anything. But I think it was the Americans who started demanding MBAs, almost at entry level. So 24, 25 year olds were turning up in a bank for the first job with an MBA. That's not the point of it. That's the it's 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 but that again reflects the fact that there's no jobs around.
1: I I, I do struggle a little with, with MBAs I and mean, I, I I know a few people that have them and uh, you can tell they operate at a, a better level. Um, but Often recently, I've come across people, and I've discovered later that they've got that they've got an MBA, and it's not apparent to me in any way, shape, or form that that would have been the case. You know, you wouldn't have spotted it. That they, in, in fact, in several cases I could think of, they were absolutely confident, and and maybe they've gone that second route, which is you know couldn't couldn't get a job, so uh, so, I, so I, um, I I got an MBA. Yes, it's it's a bit like you know in the housing crashes, you know, I couldn't sell it, so I rented it out. It's kind of that kind of thing, isn't
0: it? Yeah, and I think part of the problem is an MBA, I'm not sure what they're trying to teach. Are they trying to teach you to be an entrepreneur or are they trying to teach you to be a corporate drone who eventually goes on to high management in a large company? Because the two are completely different. And if you're the latter, most people I know who did MBAs just became a drone in a corporation, Well, you don't need an MBA to do that. And then again, you don't need an MBA to start your own business either. For me, it's just kind of, it's a useful sort of way of formalizing knowledge, completing it. I mean, there are some bits I don't know. Like, for instance, I've never done accountancy before. And now I know some basic accountancy, some double entry bookkeeping, you know, stuff like depreciation, interest amortization. I'd never done that before because I'm an engineer. And it's kind of useful stuff. Now I could have taught myself, but... You know, it is good to have a competent professor in front of you explaining it. You can ask questions. And so it's kind of filling in a lot of gaps and just formalizing kind of a lot of the stuff I've picked up in industry. So it's useful for that. But the idea that it would make me more competent or more knowledgeable to a degree where it would have a huge effect on my career or my ability to do a job, I think it's nonsense. That won't happen. So it's just a kind of just a useful way to just wrap up stuff that I knew. I already know, and add to it.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I, I I get that. It's um, and it's yeah, more broadly, I would imagine, at your slash our age, going back and studying again is a useful, useful exercise anyway. Actually, because you do, you know, you can get into a bit of a rut clear what you do. I'm, not saying you're not, but i have certainly find over the years that you know, I kind of revert back to. Um, Okay, I don't have to do this one, I'll just I'll, I'll bang this out for three months. This is pretty easy. Feel feel pretty good about it. Um, if you can get a bit too complacent if you're not careful. So being exposed to that, that uh, extra separate of discipline is useful. I mean, we, we spoke the other day about statistics. You know, I, I think um I think there's a there's a huge gap in most people's knowledge on on just the use and the value of statistics. Yes. You know, the, the amount of times the amount of times I have banged my head. Metaphorically on the on the table, when someone presents something to me in averages, and you know, that's not really telling me anything. No. You, know, the, you know, the classic, customer, you know, the classic customer service example is you know, um, it, it, on average we answer the we answer the phone in, in uh, five rings, okay. But that probably means that someone's been on the been waiting with a ringtone for, for ten minutes, and someone else get you know, and lots of people get answered in one minute. What you really need is a histogram. And you want to see the distribution of those calls being answered in exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. You know, the, the, the average and the, average the, the, the median don't help you.
0: And this one course that I've just, uh, well, I've got my final exam next week, but it's Quantified Business Methods. And it's been quite good because it's what it's done is it showed us all these tools. that you can get just on Excel, there's a whole data analysis add-in tool. Mm. And you can run descriptive statistics. You can see the histogram. You can see how much it's skewed. You can see... You can look at variances between different sets of data to see if the variances are the same. And I found that really useful. And I mentioned this the other day to you, but, and I can't really pull the trigger on this yet because I've handed it in. I just, <laughs> I just haven't had the results yet. I haven't had the mark yet, but, but if the marks come yeah. back, this is, and, and I've done my analysis correctly, this is gonna be so funny because I basically used these analytical tools to run a set of statistical analyses on the way in which a previous employer does its cost estimations of its capital projects, particularly the floating ones. And if my analysis is correct, they are assuming an association and a correlation between parameters and cost, which simply doesn't exist. In effect, the entire basis of their cost estimations is completely wrong. And that, for me, is quite amusing because I've actually learned this tool. I've I've learned now the skills to analyse stuff properly. And clearly, nobody ran this analysis in in my previous employer. They they don't they don't seem they don't seem to care.
1: But what about the actions? Surely, surely there was a clue in the actions. There is. There always <laughs> is. And they
0: come up with a million ways to explain that. And I mean, I I've, I came up with a few theories backed by empirical data of why I thought there were these uh, differences. For instance, why does the weight of each new installation increase so much each time? Basically, they're getting heavier and heavier. And the costs are going up and up. And I had some theories about that. Nobody's interested. Your job in a big organization is to shut up and get with the program. And when I first moved to this department, which did a lot of these estimations, I found a really quite serious flaw in their estimation methodology that came from the fact that they were applying offshore floating methodology to installations which were built on the ground, which is even a cursory look shows you shouldn't do that because just the correlations are completely different. But they missed out a huge factor, well, a huge piece of equipment that contributes massively, like 30% to the costs. And this wasn't taken into consideration. And they wrote this huge... In fact, they got an intern to write this huge cost estimation procedure. And it was all reviewed and approved. But when I reviewed it, I put in this comment that how can this be accurate when it doesn't take into account these certain factors? And I, was, I wrote this big email thinking I was being helpful, saying, look, this is my experience. This is the data that backs it up. This is why I think we need to really look at this. I got called in by the department manager and my boss. And they said, we've read your email. We understand what you're saying, but this is what we've decided to do. You get with the program. Now, they're not saying this to a 22 year old who's just walked in the door. They're saying this to somebody who's like, I was, how old was I at time, about 38, 37. And I had 15 years experience. I had actual technical experience in the area I was talking about. And I was told, shut up, get with the program. You are expected to implement this procedure Without question, I'm
1: trying to think of the name. I'm trying to think of the name of the character in uh, George Orwell's 1984. You just became that person, didn't you? Was it someone Smith. Winston Smith. You know, we, we have, we have, yeah, Winston Smith. We have to agree that that is well. The, right. the
0: two plus two plus five? I never appreciated how good an analogy that was until I worked in a major company. You are told day after day after day, and it's the same with the, with the with the gender gap. It's the same with the, you know, you have to accept time and again that two plus two equals five and if you don't all of a sudden you're a problem and your career suffers and george orwell was brilliant in that 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 one bit and i i didn't realize this until years after i read the book that the number of times on a daily basis in a big prominent organization you are expected to say and repeat two plus two equals five and if you don't ah, you're finished
1: diversity is our strength yeah. What's that? What's that great one? Oh, organisations with, with better who levels are more successful. And, and you know, every every ounce of me wants to scream out, is that causation or correlation, or did it ha- or did it or did it happen after after they were successful? Well, this
0: is this is what my, this is going to be the subject of my dissertation. I have to write a dissertation, and probably the subject will be the effect of gender diversity on company performance. And I have to go through all the existing studies and see their methodology. But what I expect is happening is exactly as you say, and I've written about this before on my blog, that companies, once they get successful and big and rich, fall into the public eye, they become household names, and suddenly they're under pressure from the government and society in general to diversify. And then they have the money to do that. So it's basically, if you're a big, rich, successful household name, you will diversify your board. So they've put the cart before the horse. What doesn't happen is companies are struggling along their startups. They're trying to get, uh, you know, they're trying to build up. They employ a load of women and suddenly they hit success because of that. It's the completely opposite way around.
1: Well, what, what, what you've just described is um, O'Sullivan's law. I don't know if you've heard of that. That's a, uh, John O'Sullivan is um, an advisor. I think, I think he wrote speeches for Thatcher, yeah. Right. Um, and he's he's got this really pithy statement that says um, organizations that aren't explicitly right wing tend to the left over time, and, and that's what you've just described. Is an, an organization starts out um, finding a market niche, becomes successful gets to a certain size, and then it just goes, goes to, the, to the left. And it wasn't going to the left that made it successful.
0: No, exactly. And, and this is when I, I wrote that blog piece the other day from my, when we had to all present these business plans. And there are all these groups saying, well, we're going to start up company. We're going to have these factories processing palm oil and making cars and this kind of thing. And we're going to have a gender diversity of 50-50. Well, no, you're not because you're describing an industrial process, which unfortunately needs a lot of men grubbing around on the floor. And you will find women in those positions. Every single oil field I've been on had not even a small number of women. Actually, there's quite a few of them around. But it's still, even if you, even if they're, you, know, you get 800 people on a site, 80 women is a lot of women. And you will find that, particularly in Russia, there's a lot of women on sites in safety and engineers. And I, yeah. I even Nigeria, I even met a boat driver who was a French woman. She was driving a boat and she was, you know, yeah, holding her own with the men, no problem. But you assume 800 people in a factory. If 80 of them are women, which is a hell of a lot, you're still only going to get 10%. And That's in right. a company that wants to grow and be big, you don't have these admin and bureaucratic positions which you need in bigger companies but those are the positions women tend to prefer because it's nicer working conditions more sociable working hours you're not upside down wet cold miserable at night covered in oil being handed a spanner trying to get it on the end of a rounded off wing nut
1: yeah oh um, well you yeah. know it's the, it's the, it's the age-old mean, isn't it? And gender diversity doesn't seem to occur in uh, industrial accidents. Does it? No,
0: and and when you whenever you hear these uh, these companies, yeah, they say. No, to the company. Actually, I don't know. I mean, I, I wrote a piece the other day, just a short assignment for one of my professors, where they were talking about how you know gender diversity is you know something that is new. This is the future, and I said. If companies such as British American Tobacco, British Aerospace and major oil companies on the front page of their websites bang on about gender diversity, this isn't something new or groundbreaking. This is as part of the established narrative as it's possible to imagine. Seriously, arms dealers and tobacco companies are on board with it. This isn't something new. But what I'd like to see actually is, and obviously they have to shore up bad reputations, but I suspect there's companies that aren't quite household names. Like, for instance, I don't know, I might even research this. Supposing there's a company that makes ball bearings for gas turbines that no one's ever heard of. I suspect they are under much less pressure to have gender-diversified boards because they have no PR campaign because they don't. it's, it's only uh, B2B customers. The household names of the final product particularly if they're involved in government work, yes, they all have to engage with these kind of programs. But I wonder if there's a whole kind of economy behind the household names where they just don't bother with this stuff so much.
1: But again, we're, we're back, to, back to what I do. You know, I, I am John Rambo, and, and this, this company is John Rambo. I mean, I'm not into yeah, the perfect middle arms, middle manager, ranker, but, um, but you, know, you get under the radar. You get under the radar by your employment type or you get under the radar by your company size and profile um, and perhaps perhaps they're the people that are going to drive the outcomes without being hamstrung by you know 1990s South African refugee and processes systems you know, how, you know, how did that look out for you?
0: well yeah and this in fact somebody made a good uh, comparison with South Africa that they, they they had the they had the system come in that all this work had to be done with companies with uh, right balance of uh, of blacks versus whites. But all that happened is they would be front companies and they just take a 10% cut and then it would be immediately passed on to whichever company, regardless of how they're made up, would be able to do the job competently. And you see this with local content legislation in places like Nigeria. That says that you have to employ, you can only use companies with 80% locals or 90% locals. So you give the work to a front company in Nigeria who immediately just subcontracts it abroad. Mm. And then, you know, the local company takes their cuts. So all it is really, it's like a tax. It's like a 20% tax or even higher, 30, 40% tax on the cost of doing business. And I suspect that's what we'll see in, in fact, it's already probably happening. There's all these additional costs imposed on the ultimate consumer because of these policies. Uh-
1: and isn't that the point? Yes. You know, it, it's uh, high corporation tax. That's a good thing. Well, is it because it's not actually the company that's paying the high corporation tax? If they're if they're producing a consumer product or service that you buy, that's being passed on to you. They're they're going to maintain their eight or twelve percent margin, and they're going to pass the cost exactly. on to you. Exactly. So corporate, you know, corporation tax. High corporation tax, good thing. Not really sure about that. Either. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's lots of economic studies that, that you know, some more studies to about um, a, a, about what the, the optimal level is. What well, the latter period is uh, the corporation tax but, but this you know, corporation tax good. No, Just do not I I d I, I, I don't I don't want to fall corporation tax. I want a
0: cheap car. But the best fees. thing about corporation tax from a government point of view is that the incidence, as you say, is hidden. It falls on it mm. falls mainly on the worker and the customer. And it but it's hidden. I mean, and you are never, ever, ever gonna arrive at a point where a majority of the population says understands tax instance and says, well this is just you know taking out of my right pocket and putting it in my left pocket They're never going to do that. I mean you will you will always have 70 80% percent of the population insistent that companies are very rich and you're better taxing them And I, so a lot of the kind of economic libertarian arguments are very good and it's a great starting point. The problem is when you try to superimpose that on an existing population, even a very bright one, it just fails completely. So corporation tax, yeah, it's stupid, but it's here to stay. I mean, it's never going to go away because yeah. you are, you know, you are ne- you are never, ever going to get a politician will never get into office saying, right, well, here's a here's a tax incidence. You know, they, they just won't understand it and they won't care. They want to see oil companies taxed. They want to see Apple taxed and Google taxed and Starbucks taxed because they see them as big, rich companies. Um, Simple as that. It's that, that's that's the nature. That's human nature, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, well, again,
1: you know, I, I think there's a, there's a a lot of economic um education or lack of education uh, in in many people that I meet um, you know, they, they don't quite understand that that endpoint, the outcome. But the outcome is it's going to be more expensive for you. than you know, there's, there's a classic here in um, in Australia. They um, they've imposed. Um, they're equivalent to VAT on internet purchases. In oh, the yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and, and it's great. So if you think about it, um, you know, you go onto Amazon.com and you order something and a week and a half later it arrives and typically it would be, you know, if it was a book, for example, it would be 40% cheaper, including, including the postage. Um, and, and lots of other examples as well. Ski gear, uh, a, a recent recent purchase of Ski ski gear is significantly cheaper if you can get it from the US. Um, and uh, so they've they've imposed the GST, you know, the sales tax, you know, sales tax um, on percent on these purchases, and they've they've basically hectored um, in the, the organisations to ensure that they collect it at source. So Amazon Amazon dot sent emails out saying they were going to do that, and you know, one of these I, I subscribe to one of these uh, freight forwarding services in the US, and they emailed to say we'll be applying a ten percent charge for your, for your Australian government services um, and services. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the loudest proponents of this were the high street um, electrical sales organisations. There's a company called a company called Harvey Harvey Norman, you know. Mr. 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 Capitalist, Mr. Capitalist says, "Oh, you definitely need to pay tax on that five hundred dollar purchase." Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, remind me to never shop in the store ever. Okay. But that,
0: that's the thing. People people seem to. Again, this is this isn't something which certainly I wouldn't have acknowledged years ago, and I think a lot of people on the economic right don't acknowledge is that although they're starting to more and more, is that capitalists will jump into bed with the first government that can boost their bottom line. It's, and it's why yeah. Tim Wurstel bangs on about free markets being far more important than the means of ownership. Because, yeah, the, the and in fact, something that the Z-Man went on about, he said that in the early days, the, the natural position of capitalists when they break through into a new age or a new era of technology It's to form a monopoly. It's why Standard Oil was broken up. There was one oil company. That's what they want. The first thing, that is their natural position. Get into a monopoly position. And it's why Standard Oil was broken up. And it's why people are calling for Amazon and Google. And uh, I think it's just those two at the moment to be broken up. You know, why is Amazon selling books and TV services and this kind of thing? If this had been in the 1920s or 1910 with Standard Oil, they would just said, no, you're not doing that. In fact, they didn't even say to Standard Mm. Oil, you're doing too many things. You need to separate out refining and crude production and retail. Oh, they didn't do that. They just said, sorry, you're too big. You're being split up into seven companies. Sorry, you're just not doing it. You just need to split up geographically. So the equivalent, which would be stupid, but the equivalent would be right. You've now got Amazon Northwest USA, Amazon Southwest, Amazon Midwest, Amazon California. That's what they did to Standard Oil.
1: Standard Oil were um, particularly ruthless in their uh, expansion techniques. Oh, yeah. They were. um, were. It's it's the
0: idea that they were, you know, it's free market and it's all fluffy capital. It was free market, it was completely free market. But the people who were getting shafted was the consumer. And again, I don't want to be an advocate of government intervention per se. And sort of, I wouldn't want to describe a policy what you need to do. But the idea that absent government intervention, Everything's roses. It isn't.
1: No, of course not. No, and I and I and I'm far away from that as well. I'm I'm a I'm a small government sort of person, but not but not a no government sort of person. Um, interesting interesting anecdote. I don't know if it's true. It's it's uh it's worth bugling, but I, I did hear a tale that um Standard Oil is directly responsible for saving the whale. Yeah, it will
0: probably will be because they produced the oil, which meant people weren't hunting whales to light their houses anymore.
1: That's right. It's a, it's a great one to tell to, you, to your green friends if, you, if you ever have any.
0: Yeah. So just, just going back to something we spoke about earlier, in your experience, in the conversations you've had with people in the corridors and over a beer, do people in these big organisations believe this narrative that they're being told about minorities and gender pay gaps? Do they actually believe it? Or are they just engaged in a massive PR campaign?
1: It's a massive self delusion. Uh, no, they don't. G- generally, generally, when you do have a, a conversation that is safe enough for people to have that to have that discussion, they don't believe in it. I mean, I, I, I reference that, the, the guy that we've a while back there, the, the gay bar. He's, he's the worst critic of us. He thinks it's completely, completely uh, ridiculous you know, ever. Um, and the organization he works for is one of the worst when it comes to um, drinking the Kool-Aid for the you know the, the, the different celebration days and and, and rhythms and whatever um, during the year um, and he chuckles about you know, the lgbtq lmnop um brigade and he's one of them and it's uh pretty pretty but he finds it completely ridiculous. um completely ridiculous. and we chuckle about it as well you know if you think about the lgbtq T Q I you know so so the first two are the same. Yeah. They're gay. Um, the, the, the third one is selfish. It was you know, basically they want their cake and eat it. Um the, the fourth one let's it, it's until about five minutes ago it was cast as a mental illness by the American Psychiatric Association. I've no, I've, I've no idea what the Q is, and the eyes, me- and, and the eyes, the eyes, actually a medical condition. But,
0: but they're st- they're ad- they've added all these others on now. There's now. I mean, polyamory's on there now.
1: Oh, brilliant. Where, where does the P goes? Oh is it God, the, no. It's not. I is just it, said,
0: you, that, yeah. That, that, it needs to be sorted alphabetically, at
1: least, doesn't it? So you miss. Well, it'll just up be A to
0: Z. It. Z. It'll be A to Z by the end. But,
1: but here's the thing, right? So what? So what? Do you, what are you doing? by are grouping so, you, so the one at the end, the, the intercepts, that's a medical condition. You're born with that. And um, to say that they've got anything apart from being human and you know, breathe and eat and, and have requirements and go to the toilet and whatever. Anything in common with the other letters is it, a it's a fallacy. You know, it's it's, it's the equivalent of um, it's the equivalent of you know, two thousand seven packaging up different types of debt and calling it separate.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a they make they made a category error by putting them together, and it's um and it's why there's that's such right. a contradiction between the if trans people can change, then that gives an entire lie to the idea that people can't be cured of gayness. I mean, they they, they, used, they used to yes. have workshops and and laboratories to cure people of gayness, and they said no, it's hardwired. This is who we are, which is fair enough, and that's kind of the the position I take that it's it's mostly ha- how they're born. But then if you're in the same category saying that trans people can change, well, okay, well, let's, let's you know, may, maybe why not offer commercial services for gays who want to become straight? Why not offer a shop saying we can make you straight? If men can become women, why can't gays become straight? And it's, it's a complete contradiction. But that, as, as many people have pointed out, that doesn't seem to bother the, the people pushing these narratives.
1: It's, it's interesting, um, if you go back and, and you look at the history of the, the gay rights movement, you know, the pride marches, for example, um, they, were, they were started, I think, in New York after the Stonewall riots, um, and if you look at the group of people that were, that were bundled together as called gay, that were called gay during that, that period, it included a whole bunch of people that, it was nothing to do with sexuality, it was to you know, to do with, you know, just being outsiders, they, they, they were absol- outsiders to the norm, but they, but they, they gravitated to to, um, to the to the, the pride march and the the, the the gay moniker. And now what's happening, I think, now is, is it, it's slicing out again. They're taking out the different categories and calling it, as you say, a single category. I and mean, it's an it's, it, I think it's an error that would be quite amusing to watch play out over the years, as you say, as, it, as these as these logical inconsistencies. Bubble out, and you get people. You get people like the Dutch guy who, who who reckons if if gender is a social construct, then so is age. So he's like twenty years off his birth.
0: It's funny that, but it's. I I actually think the gays have made a massive error in siding with the trans movement. And I and I write this. I wrote this in a blog in the context of Russia. You see, gay people going on about LGBT rights, well, they're not quite the same thing. And if you're going to go into Russia and, quite rightly, campaign for gay rights, hooking yourself to the trans movement is going to doom your campaign to failure. And this is what that idiot Peter Tatchell didn't seem to realise. He stood in the street in Moscow going on about LGBT rights. Well, your average Russian is going to go, what the hell are they? And they're going to start talking about yeah. trannies, and they're going to think, who, what, those guys who run around dressed as women? What have they got to do with any of this? Trannies in Chechnya? Is is this some kind of spoof? Is this an Ali G sketch? Whereas if they went in <laughs> and said gay rights, gay and lesbian rights, and said there's gay men in clubs in Moscow and Petersburg and Chechnya being, you know, who are, who are, are struggling, your average Russian would go, okay, yeah, I probably know someone like that. I'll sympathise. And, and look, gay rights in, America, in, in Russia is probably similar to where it was in the UK in like the 70s, you know. And it's getting better. Look, yeah. I, I know a lot of gay Russians out in Thailand and they're in Thailand because it's difficult for them in Russia. But when I lived in Russia, I knew a couple of gay guys and it was difficult for them in some measure, but it was getting better. But if someone's going to come in and start hooking them up to the trans movement, trans people simply are invisible in Russia. If you started talking mm. about them, you'd, honestly, people would think it was a sketch, you were having a laugh, but they seem to have, gay people seem to have put themselves in the same category. And I think ultimately, that's going to make it very difficult for gays in other countries to get their, their movement off the ground because people are just going to associate them with a, a phenomenon that's so rare that it's either a joke or they're classified as insane.
1: Well, I, I, mean, I, I just take issue with the point about they, the gays have made a mistake. The ones I know haven't because they, they think it's a joke. They think it's a laugh. And they, they, you know.
0: But they've allowed others to set the narrative. I mean, there are some pretty sensible... Yeah. Uh, gay, there's a lot of sensible gay people about, but they've allowed their moniker to be adopted by the lunatics. And now, if you go into a yeah. new country... I mean, OK, in the UK and America, people are pretty sure all the different versions of gays, you know, the sensible ones and the nutters. But if you're going into Turkey... Or China, or America, and uh, sorry, I keep saying America, or Russia, and talking about gay rights. They're not going to know that there's you know ninety percent or ninety-five percent of gay men are just normal blokes wanting to get on with their lives. They're just going to see the five percent lunatics who are all dressed up in drag and hanging out with the trannies and saying, "Well, this is the face of our movement." Well, who's going to sign up for that? Nobody. And and the the I think the big part of acceptance of gay life, in the UK and US wasn't the exposure to the pride and the the gay villages and all the the real kind of flamboyant um, over hypersexualized stuff. It was the gradual realization that you meet gay guys and you think, well, actually, he's all right. He's he's pretty much the same as me. I mean, I knew a few in university, and you know, you get exposed to them as you go through life, and you just think, actually, they're they're they're, they're just. All right, blokes, you know, they're okay. They live normal lives. I think that is what drove acceptance of gays in the West far more than all the flamboyant stuff. Now, maybe the flamboyant stuff was necessary, I don't know. But certainly from my point of view and the point of view of people I speak to, they were more accepting of gay life when they realised they're pretty normal. If they've let the nutters hook themselves up to the trannies, and that's now the faces air movement, they will struggle to... Get their voices heard—the normal people's voices heard—in countries like Russia.
1: Well, it's—I mean, what you're describing is good, good persuasion versus poor persuasion. Ultimately, if the outcome you want is is gay rights, and you want to, you want um, a safe and uh, a, a equal existence for as, as many people as possible. Then the correct persuasion technique is the one you described, which you, know, you you appeal to the fact that you know people, they're in your family, they're just normal people, they're 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 not doing you any harm, and it's when you it's when you do the overreaching and, and as you say the flamboyancy and the and the you know gender gender is a social construct. Mob when 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 it's all or nothing you have to accept you have to accept the most extreme position or you, or, or your you know, whatever whatever the issue or the phobe is of the day. Um, and, and it's overreach. You you're you're pushing the extremity as being required to be um, agreed with in total or not at all. And and if not at all then I can discount human you as a human because 'cause you're hashtag literally literally exactly. literally Exactly.
0: And that's 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 the problem. That that is exactly the problem. It's it's you you're saying that in order to accept the vast majority of ordinary gay people and to accept that they deserve equality in society, we also have to accept the most lunatic end of the trans movement because it's all part of the same package.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and of course, you know, I'm kind of with Ben Shapiro on this one, is I'm is not going to accept that someone in the penis is, is or could ever be. No, I'm the same. It, it's it, yeah, yeah but, but biology biology is pretty pretty um, unchangeable in that regard, as, as far as I can as I can tell. I'm not a biologist, but, um, but but I've got a set of eyes, and and what what I'm seeing is a, an increasing amount of the of the people that are pushing this narrative in the public eye um, that they're also admitting to being mentally unwell. So the so, so the trend the trends. Community, ultimately, what that is, it's, it's a disease of the mind. It isn't. It isn't a physical problem. Right? You know, cutting, cutting parts of your body up. Actually, statistically, doesn't solve your, your unhappiness. But what I'm seeing is people like um, you know, people like Laurie Penny, your favourite Laurie Penny, <laughs> and over here we've got uh, over here we've got Clementine Ford, um, and they're, they're admitting now to, or they're, they're publicly stating that they're struggling with mental illness. No, no fucking shit, Sherlock. You you've got you, you've got some very illogical beliefs that that contradict each other, and they contradict the observable evidence in front of you. No wonder you are having issues mentally. Um, and and the worst thing about this is is you is, is by admitting. And I'm not saying I'm not saying if you have a mental illness that you shouldn't be open about it. But there is now almost a reward for being open about how it's struggling. Exactly. It you're you know, your brave. And, and what you get on social media, and I think it's a social media problem, is you get that dopamine hit. You get that dopamine hit for the, you know, the 500 likes you got because you said you were feeling a bit suicidal today.
0: And look, the, the worst place, if, you, if you've got mental problems and you're depressed and you've got issues, the probably the worst thing you can do is go on Twitter and try and solve it that way. I mean, it's good to be open and it's good to talk to people. And I find it very therapeutic to write publicly and to talk to people about any problem I'm having. But Twitter in particular is probably the worst place to do that because it's just, I mean, you you know what Twitter's like. And, And what you see a lot of, especially among women, is they're all now saying it's almost a badge of honor to say they have PTSD. Now, it used to be PTSD was Mm. reserved for soldiers who'd come back from some horrible battle or people who'd been in like really, really extreme, difficult circumstances, caught up in a tsunami, a plane crash, a car crash, or they'd grown up in like really bad childhood conditions where they'd been. And they really do need to seek proper counselling and therapy. But now it's like a badge of honour. Some woman will say, oh, I've had PTSD since I was four. Well, why was that? Well, I don't know. And Natalia Antonova says that she's on. She she says she's had PTSD since she was a child. Oh, were her parents horrific? No, apparently her parents okay. were lovely. So where does this come from? Apparently, it's just something you're born with. Yeah. But where the trauma comes in, I don't know. It's it's attention seeking on a massive scale. That's what it is. And
1: well, 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 and, and and the problem is, it's yes. rewarded now. So so there is there is a societal. Societal, you know, and, and social media isn't society, I, I don't do it anymore. I was on it for a while and it, it, it bored me in fact out of because I would agree with the people that I agreed with and I, I'd argue until I got blocked with the people I didn't agree with. And, and nothing, nothing ever was changed. I've never seen anyone's opinion changed on Twitter, you know. It, it's like arguing with an international referee, you know, at a rugby match. They are not going to reverse that decision. I stay on
0: Twitter mainly because it's a very good source of news, what's going on and and commentary. And it's also, I mean, I'm not interested in arguing on Twitter. I'm not interested in arguing with anybody anymore. But what I do like, there is some very witty comments. And I have met quite a few people who broadly share my opinions, but I don't really like following them because they share my opinions. I just quite like the banter with them. And Ben Sixsmith is a, is a good one. He's some young writer I'd never heard of, lives in Poland. But he's got a good sense of humour. You can make fun of him, you can include him, you can tag him in, and he always responds well. And uh, there's a French guy, um, Philippe Lemoy, who I met actually met up with him in Paris just before I left. He's another one who comes out with some interesting stuff. And it's just they're just quite nice just to sort of banter with a bit and Damien Council's another one who's quite fun to banter with you know he makes some funny jokes and that's what I like it's just kind of a, it's a bit like being in a pub where you know there's a handful of good blokes around you can have a chat with as soon as you start getting into the you know the real tribal stuff it's a complete waste of time it's 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 a waste of time
1: they're not going to change your mind and and Perhaps they might change yours if they put some tangible evidence and you know, back it up with, with facts. But, it, but it's, it's highly unlikely. Uh, I see it as a waste of time. But as you say, if you if you have um, if you are anywhere close to having any kind of mental issue, I think the, the thing you need to do is delete all your Facebook and social media accounts. Just, just clear them out. You, you, you need to you need to physically meet
0: people. You
1: don't need to see strangers Well, anymore.
0: this is funny. Have you, um speaking of Laurie Penny, did you see the Louis Theroux documentary on polyamory?
1: No, I didn't. Um, I'm, I'm, surprised it's, I'm surprised it's passed me by. You'll be telling me he's done one on plastic bags? Uh,
0: no, I, I think he was going to. And I said, no, I've copyrighted that. That's my, <laughs> that's, my, that's, my, that's my area. But he's done one. And a load of people emailed me saying, you've got to watch it. Anyway, I watched it yesterday and I took a load of notes. And I'm yeah. going to watch it again. I'm going to write the blog post, watch it again, and write a proper blog post on it. But I can tell you now, it confirmed what I knew. Mm. This is a lifestyle choice for people with... I, I won't go as far... Okay, I'm not going to say mental problems because I'm an engineer, not a doctor. But it's people with personality issues of some sort. If I was going to be less charitable, I'd say there's a guy on there who looks as though he's about to kill himself. And there's others who really, really, really do need to go and get some therapy quick. You never look at these groups and think these are normal people who, even in outward appearance, they're not normal. Their behavior, their way of talking, their beliefs aren't normal. So it's really a, a kind of a unique lifestyle choice. In, in fact, it's a coping mechanism, not a lifestyle yeah. choice.
1: Well, well, so here's, here's the test. As a parent, here's the test. Would I would I ask them to babysit a small child?
0: No, you wouldn't. No, of course you wouldn't. No. Um, and, but, and that's
1: the test. So that's the test. If, if, if you're a, if you're a regular functionary adult, and I needed I needed you to look after my kids for a couple of hours, I'd, I'd let you do it.
0: So well, that kind of brings me on to the point I was going to make. That I don't care if these people are polyamorous, just as I don't care that there's people on Twitter who claim they have PTSD. And I don't care that people like Laurie Penny can hold six contradictory opinions in her head at the same point, at the same time. But what it does tell me is that these are people who, for my own well-being, my own personal well-being, should be avoided and not taken seriously. Now I'm not saying they should be locked away or shut down and, out, and in isolation. I'm not even saying what they're doing is wrong because I I'm, I can't be bothered to make the moral judgment. If one of those people enters into my sphere, it's in my interest to keep them well out of it and to keep my distance because all these things are signs of people who live such a different way that they are probably going to be detrimental to my long-term interests. And that's the point, I think. People think that, you know, you see polyamorists or you see these nutters with purple hair, That you're judging them and that, you know, they're, they're normal and there's nothing wrong with them. They're not normal. They are in a minority. And if someone is in an extreme minority like that, just for your own well-being, just keep your distance. That's all you need to do, keep your distance.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Yeah. But I am definitely... <laughs> I, 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 yeah, you see, you see, You see the extremely overweight people with... with... You know, multiple piercings and visible facial tattoos it's and self
0: harm coloured c- hair. You know, that, that, you know,
1: how many badges do you need to wear that say I have problems?
0: Exactly, and st- and stay away. Now, now they might. It's it's their free choice. They can do what they want. I don't care. But if they're in my sphere, no, please leave it. Or I will yeah. get myself out of their sphere and walk away. And that's something that it took me. Basically, the writing of that book to work out how to express that. Because, I mean, I'd I'd come up to that point thinking, uh, you know, everyone, you're judgmental. You shouldn't judge. You're judgmental. And it took a year of thrashing out the arguments to work out that actually I'm not being judgmental. You can do whatever you like. But if you're going to come into my sphere and you're 35 years old with bright purple hair, I can immediately ascertain that you will probably be bad news for my long term well-being and therefore I'm going to get myself away from you. And that's and that's that's the way I see it. And I think that, um, yeah, anyone who's struggling with this, anyone who is accused of being judgmental needs to look at, you know, do go through the process that sort of I did and look at this and just say, well, this is this is objective reasoning here. This isn't prejudice This is just, you know, okay, you can do what you want, but don't come near me. And when I was looking at these polyamorous groups on the Louis Theroux documentary, I could see that these are people who, they're special, they are not normal, and it's not just because they're sleeping with multiple people. The underlying reasons, when Louis Theroux gets talking to them, there are some deep issues that aren't being addressed, and the result of that is polyamory.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's it's the outcome. It's not the reason. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. You know, you say not judgmental. The reason we're alive today Tim, is because our ancestors were very judgmental. Yeah. You know, if you if you're welcoming of all, if you're welcoming of all regardless you know, regardless of any background information, you didn't tend to live very long. So, so judge being judgmental to a certain extent is is a useful evolutionary um, tool
0: and it's it's necessary in 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 any in any society and as a friend of mine putch said it's not so much judgement judging as just um assessing whether this person's good for me or not and that's the same as if you're doing business with somebody if i just met you and you came up to me on the street in sydney and said you know i want to sell you something i have to i have to assess you pretty quickly are you somebody that i want to be friends with or not you know and this is what you do with everybody but people seem to think because it's in a context of certain contexts, whether it be to do with you know sexual relations or political relations, that you shouldn't judge people. It's nonsense. I mean, we judge people all the time, even in basic friendships.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and long may um, yeah, it continue. You, know, you you made, you made a you point earlier about um, people in, senior people in organisations being uh, psychopaths or sociopaths. Probably which one you use. But, but it is true. So there's a, there's a great book called The Sociopath Next Door. Yeah, it was written about five or six years ago, I think. Um, and basically, one in 20 Americans are somewhere on the scale of uh, being sociopaths. And it's a successful strategy, it's a successful trait. So it, it gener- generally, you find the higher up an organisation, be it politics, be it business, whatever, um, the more likely the prevalence of, of sociopaths. Um, now, you've got some, you know, have got some good tools in your room on how to spot these sociopaths. Um, it, it's the it's the highly successful ones that are harder, um, but 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 the very unsuccessful ones stand out like a sore thumb.
0: But this is interesting, because it brings me straight back onto the point I said what, about an hour ago that women are discriminated against in some level in the workplace because sociopathic men do tend to prevail to high positions in a workplace. If yeah. women show the same characteristics, they are branded as you know a complete bitch and all this kind of thing, and it's looked down upon, whereas for men, it isn't. Now, my solution to that would be that let's get rid of soci- sociopaths altogether but currently you have men that are rewarded by sociopathic behaviour they act like complete assholes and people go oh you know this is good if a woman does that then she's just looked at as a complete hard ass bitch
1: that's an interesting point actually you've just prompted me to think about that and and to think back in my past so I I've definitely worked with at least three proper sociopaths like proper you know run a million miles away from these people they are Bad news, right? And they were all they were all male. I I don't think I've worked with any senior female that that displays anywhere close to that level of um, sociopath, sociopathic sociopathic behaviour. Um, that, that is quite interesting. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a I'll, I'll have to think a little bit longer about that and, and, and think back. But no, I can't. Nothing comes to mind where. Where I've had a female work on, you're, you're, you're I've got to get out of, out of your, your sphere of
0: But the other, the other way as well that I think women are discriminated, discriminated against, is that as I said before, the way in which to succeed in a modern organisation is to arse lick and get basically suck up to the management and be seen as very compliant. And what I used to see in the my previous employer, is a lot of young men doing what's called bag carrying for the women. And they'd yeah. go up, you know, they'd start, sorry, sorry, I'll start that again. They were bag carrying for their boss. So their boss would be a man and they'd accompany them to lunch. They'd do their presentations. They'd ask with them. They'd spend a lot of time and effort in the company of their boss that they otherwise didn't need to. Now there's two reasons why it's very difficult for a woman to do that. Firstly, if a woman starts saying to her boss, who's a man, hey, I think we should go for lunch together. It doesn't matter who that man is. He will, in the back of his mind, be thinking, uh-oh, is there something else going on here? They cannot get themselves in the same continuous physical proximity as, their, as, as a man can. I can suck up to my boss and go for lunch with him and text him at night and say, you're brilliant. If a woman does that, She's opening herself up to giving completely the wrong signal. So they can't do that. And the other reason as well is that I've noticed that men can really suck up to another man, even if they don't really respect him. But if a woman doesn't respect a man, she cannot physically suck up to him. The contempt is obvious. And this is a problem I think they have. I mean, going back to my lady friend from my previous job, she couldn't stand one of her old bosses. She just thought he was a complete wet. And she couldn't... Every time she was in front of him, she was just like, this guy, I have no respect for him. And because (laughs) she's a woman, it was just oozing out of her. You know, if a woman doesn't respect a man and think he's a worm, they can't hide it. Whereas men are very good, especially the suck-ups, at hiding that, you know, that the signals are different. So I think, unfortunately, in an environment where sucking up and bag-carrying and arse-licking and compliance with predominantly male managers is what gets you rewarded in your career. It's difficult for women to do that, I think. Some women to do it. I think it's easier for men.
1: Mm. I wonder why that is. I mean, I I, I have seen... It's biological,
0: I think.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. It goes against the... uh, Because if you think about women being more agreeable... That that wouldn't that shouldn't be the case, but look, I'm not I'm, I'm a psychologist.
0: They I think they are more agreeable, but if it gets to the point where they lose, they see something which they just see the. What what I found was that women from patriarchal societies were coming to France, and they found the French managers absolutely pathetic. Like, you know, they were acting like women. They were over emotional. They were. You know, they couldn't make decisions and they were coming from patriarchal societies where the men might be assholes, but you knew they were men. And I found these women struggle to respect certain French managers because they just weren't displaying proper masculine characteristics. So I think there was something on a biological point. Of Of course, the flip side is that if they did see someone displaying masculine characteristics, they have probably looked up to that guy too much. But the problem is, is that you get a lot of yes men in managerial positions these days. A lot of complete wet nappies who have no masculine characteristics. And sucking up to them is necessary to get your career moving. And I think women might struggle with that. I think a lot of women struggle.
1: You have to pamper the ego, especially if the the ego is is not a strong one anyway because they're not confident with, with men. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point.
0: And, and women are not good at pampering the ego of men they don't like.
1: Yes, i found that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Having failed to have my ego pampered very often, yeah, yes. I've found that. Yes, I, I,
1: I, I'm not feeling very pampered. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> um, well, on I, I, the subject of, uh, of, of ladies, um, I, I, I'm just curious to see the algorithm on your adverts. Um on your this last couple of weeks, every time I log onto your uh, your website, it, it's inviting me to meet ladies. And it's quite specific. It's ladies from particular countries. And the country changes every day. So I'm trying to work out, is that your Google search history or my Google search
0: history? It's yours. I ask I asked the people this. All these, all these listeners who are complaining about the adverts, they are specifically tailored to your personal desires as expressed by your browsing habits. So maybe you need to go and have a bit of a think about what adverts you're seeing I get them for camping gear for cars <laughs> fast cars yachts this kind of thing you know whereas if you're getting them for um, Persian women in your area or then I don't know this is well this is the thing it's quite it's quite specific is
1: would you like to meet women from the former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia <laughs> I, couldn't even find, I couldn't even find that on the map <laughs>
0: Anyway, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, just to wrap this up, because you've probably got about, we'll probably close this in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, you blog anonymously. Yes. Now, you're quite certain that that was the right choice to do. You're. Um, I obviously don't. Do you just want to talk about, what are your opinions on that? Could you ever blog under your your real name? Or do you think you'd have to, moderate what you say to such a degree, it wouldn't be fun anymore.
1: Well, I'm, sh- I'm sure you weren't fishing for the compliment, but I'll give it you anyway. I- I- I've got huge respect for you uh, t- for doing that. Um, for me, I've got a family, and I the nature of my work is that I need to probably change employers every, well, this year, four employers. Um, in previous years, it's one, maybe two, Um I think if i got any kind of profile under my own name, I'd probably I'd probably find that the number of jobs that I could get uh, would be reduced. In fact, yep. two two jobs ago, um, I had to undergo a social media search um, under under my name, and so before they before they brought me in, they wanted to ensure that uh, I, there was nothing that could be linked directly to me um, that was. Um, beyond the pale you know this is this is again 1984 wrong speak wrong think um so i'm i'm i I think yeah if i had the if i had the fuck off money then i would would write under my own name but i don't have fuck off money see
0: with me my point is it wasn't it's nothing to do with bravery it's the fact that i started blogging in an age where none of this was a problem and i've always written under my own name um and I built up a bit of a brand with the blog. And probably too late, I realized that uh, I should have done it anonymously. But there are some advantages about hiding in plain sight. I've found that I have written anonymously before. And I've found that you're much more willing to say things that you wouldn't if you weren't anonymous. And I'm not sure that's a good idea to do that. I think it's a bit like... You know, if you're going to say something about somebody, say it in front of their face rather than behind their back. And the blogging equivalent of that is you shouldn't really say anything hiding behind anonymity that you're not prepared to say uh, in, in, using your own name. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with it. It's just something I think that if I want to be taken seriously as a social commenter, <laughs> um, I just think my arguments are better expressed and my true feelings are better expressed moderated by society around me because that's that's true when you're speaking in the pub let's be honest when you're in the pub you're not there this brave free speech warrior saying whatever the hell comes into your head you don't you moderate your views in order to be agreeable in the the company that presents itself and that's, that's that's the same for blogging so there's that and also I've heard enough stories about people who they logged into to the wrong computer at the wrong time and got exposed. And yeah. suddenly their real name is out there and they're thinking, shit, I've written all this stuff and now they know who I am. I never have that problem. I never have to go to bed thinking, what if I get found out? Everyone knows who I am. My biography's on my blog. This is who I am. And I take the view that I should be prepared to defend anything I've written on the blog. And yeah, if an employer sees it and doesn't like it, that employer probably isn't for me anyway. Now, that might be a problem. I might be hungry and starving and jobless because of this, in which case I'm going to have to take the blog down. But at the moment, that's the way I'm going with it.
1: Well, I, you know, I agree with many of your points there. And there is, I will admit, a, a level of cowardice you know, commensurate with shouting rude names and running away. And... Um, However, I don't do that anymore. Um I, I, as you know, I used to have a blog that was um I I used to have a blog that was exclusively taking the piss out of Australians. Um but but when they gave me a passport it, it seemed a bit rude to do that, so I took that down. Um the, the my current um blog it I, I try and explore ideas on there that interest me but I would struggle to have the conversation in an open plan office. Um, and I don't particularly want to go to the pub every night to meet people to talk about it. So I, I kind of just write it out there. Sure. Now, with, with all the things that, that you and I have discussed today and information that's already there on the blog and, you know, my location and, and, and the sort of thing I do, it's not that hard to look at who I am. Um, but I'm not going to make it really easy for, for the for the muppet in, um, in the HR department next time I go, Go to a, a job interview um, to uh, to completely link me. Um, so you know, it, would would I like to do it under my own name? Yeah, absolutely. Would I like to be able to feed my kids this week? Yeah, probably too. So yeah. it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a bind. So it, it, the alternative is to be quiet and not say anything. Um, and I'm I'm very conscious that, with this current blog that I write that I I try and. I try and use some level of objective reasoning data driven yeah um, and and I, I don't just sit there shouting shouting like a like a drunk outside King's Cross station at two in the morning um, I'm actually I'm actually exploring ideas and just testing them in my head and it's almost it's almost like this is what I'm thinking and just getting it down on a on a on a, on a screen clarifies that thought for me
0: yeah um because about the job thing, I mean, yeah, I'm going to have to find a job next summer. And I think there is a chance that I will be get my applications put in the bin because HR will do a job search. It will do a search and find my name and just decide it's too much hassle employing somebody with a blog. Or they might even ask me to take it down. And if if I find I can't get a job and I'm really struggling, I might pull it. And, and I know that you can go back on the Wayback machine, but no HR person's going to do that. They, they just don't dig that deep. They just basically chuck the name in. And the thing is, most of them find me for my email address. The university I'm at found me because I apply with the teen Newman at desertsun.co.uk and they go, oh, that's unusual. I wonder what domain this is. And they put the back, <laughs> back end of it in and they find my blog. A lot of people have found me that way. But there is something a bit liberating about it. I do see the blog as an extension of myself. And part of my brand, I mean, I've actually tried to build up a brand, hence the logo. The logo's the same for the blog. The logo's the same for the podcast, which means I, you wouldn't be able to do that with anonymity. You, you, you couldn't build up this brand that you could then monetize. Steve Saylor said this. He said he'd rather have been anonymous, but then he couldn't see a way of monetizing it if his career took off. And it would be nice in future to do something with this, you know, between the podcast, the blog. I don't know if I'll ever be able to make money from it, same as with the books. But it'd be nice if I could find a job that could kind of, in some way, piggyback on the back of this. And that's, I think, a big thing. It means that in the future, there are opportunities. You know, if someone likes what I've written and says, right, we want you to write for us or we want you to come on TV. And I have had a few people ask me to come on TV um, I don't have to worry about it. I can say, "Yeah, this is me." There's nothing to hide, and I think I think that's pretty. And and given that I arrived at this point by accident, I'm not too unhappy about it. But then again, it might cost me a job or, or several.
1: Yeah, but, but, yeah. The nature of your work though is that you only need one job. Yes, I I need I need several often a year, um, and and therefore I think the risk is. Increased exponentially for me, that it could impact me negatively. As I say, it, you know, it, you're, you're a pretty incompetent investigator if you can't work out who I am yeah, in the industry I'm in. Um, so, yeah, I, I, if, if someone if someone works out who I am based on what they read or or they hear this thing, so whatever. It, yeah. Uh, I yeah, I, I I doubt I'm I doubt I'm going to be on the um, the, the nine o'clock news tomorrow night. And, and and even if I am the news cycle. Of Roll, rolls on so quickly these days that no longer who I am
0: anyway. I'm also banking on the fact well not banking on it, but I'm also a little bit optimistic in the fact that I think that in the next few years there might be a massive pushback against this stuff. And it might be that, you know, there's certain companies and certain individuals where who don't practice this stuff and big companies have tied themselves in such a Gordian knot that suddenly this whole thing about free speech and what you said on social media and, and SJW stuff is just seen as so ridiculous that companies just have to abandon it.
1: It's um it's almost the uh, you know, the dianification, the dianification of the population, isn't it? Yeah. I, I was uh, I was living in Hong Kong um, when she she died, and um, and I I just sat there watching the TV with my jaw open going, what is happening to my country? They've all gone, start raving mad. It, yes, it's a tragedy that the mother of two children is just started in the park, this is in Paris. But this isn't... You know, this isn't um...
0: I think that was a huge turning point in Britain, actually. I think it may maybe not the turning point, but it was certainly the marker that that corner had been turned. And it coincided with... Uh, the Blair years, which I think was another, in hindsight, a huge marker of the way society had completely changed and not in a good way. I think those two things, Mm. and the the way that Blair inserted himself into that whole thing with the people's princess, Now, I think that was a huge marker. In fact, I think the social historians might look back and say that whatever led up to that point once that Diana seen a new labor played out over those few years, it was quite clear the direction of travel Britain was headed in and possibly well we don't know the final result, but people might look around and say well it was inevitable
1: yeah yeah potentially I mean as you say it might reverse over time in which case you're, um, you're in the winner's seat because you, you've been against this publicly with your own name everyone else is everyone else has been um shouting know, rude names behind the chainmail, thanks to all the other way.
0: And that's what I'm hoping is that the, look, we keep hearing, and I keep hearing, you know, that, oh, they need people who think differently, they're disruptors, they want to come in because the old methods aren't working. Well, that now, in the modern economy, is somebody like me. Because what, they, what a lot of people think is the disruptive stuff is, as I said before about British American tobacco and the arms dealers, that's complete orthodoxy now. And I'm hoping that there's small companies, particularly, I mean, Switzerland's got a lot of small, medium-sized enterprises who are making industrial processes and things that probably need people to be a bit different than the corporate drones. And I'm hoping that, you know, I can find one of them that says, okay, we can see who you are, but we actually need someone like this rather than a company that's absolutely terrified of anybody who might slightly stray off the reservation. And I'm hoping that as these as you know, put it this way, if we head to another reset recession, which might happen, or another stock market crash, these big companies are going to have to be shedding tens of thousands of people. We're going to go from peacetime to wartime and companies are going to need people coming in who can actually get shit done.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see so, uh, certain markets that I follow. I don't see that there will be a, a, a US or global recession next year. The 2020 might be the year where uh, the the indicators are pointing that way. Um, It'd be interesting to see, regardless, it'd be interesting to see which people they shed.
0: Well, yeah, I think I I know what's going to happen because I've already seen this when the oil price collapsed. They shed all the engineers and kept all the bureaucrats because the bureaucrats are Mm -hmm. the ones who are, are making the decisions. But let's see them execute a project and see who actually does the work. I mean, you can make any decision you like. So I'm hoping that there'll be a few quite, and like I said, I only need one or two jobs. I'm hoping that there'll be a few forward-thinking companies that have been set up by people who've gone, I can see the direction of travel. We need to make sure we're not part of this. We need to do something differently. Therefore, we genuinely do need people who are a bit different. And I think, I'm hoping that I'll be able to identify at least one company like that and get in there.
1: Well, you only need to find the one.
0: Exactly. I only need to find the one. So that's the idea. Okay. So, right. We've been going almost two and a half hours. Fantastic. And, I, and
1: I've only had one gin and tonic. This is, uh, this is not on. We, we, should have, we should have scheduled a break so I could have topped my glass well, up. It's, and, and it, you despite.
0: should have got one of your kids to bring them in ultra quietly. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's just gone. It's, it's half past 12 here. And uh, I suppose I could have been drinking past midday, but I can't be drinking at half past 10 in the morning on a Sunday. Um, and I've, I've got stuff to do, but, uh, anyway, thanks very much for the conversation. It's been, it's been really good. I'm hoping that the, I can clean up all the background noise and get something good. And I'm hoping that my listeners will, uh, will enjoy this. And for all those people who listen and have downloaded, um, yeah, click on that big red link that's on the top of my sidebar, my blog and consider donating because, uh, yeah, I'm just a poor struggling student now. Um, and, and
1: this uh, and this podcast is um, is not without the effort either. I know how much work in uh, work in preparation you have to put in, and how much post um, production effort you'll, you'll have to do to get it to uh, a point where it can be online. So i would encourage you to, 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 to splash and catch up poor old too.
0: Exactly. There you go. Listen to the man. All right. Well, thanks everybody, and thanks a lot, and uh, thanks a lot, uh, Bill, for your company. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll see you all again next time. Justin.